Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Sarah as they return to Earth and come face to face with prehistoric monsters in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. But as always, I shall do the story recap. Part 1. The TARDIS lands in the middle of an empty park somewhere in London, an unknown distance from its intended target of Unit HQ. Sarah Jane voices her concern that they may have landed in the wrong time zone, but the Doctor assures her that they are at worst only a few weeks out from when they left. He says they should look for a phone to call the Brigadier, but they hear a large crashing sound nearby, which the Doctor says is most likely the Parks Department cutting down trees. They find a phone box, but the line is completely dead, and Sarah Jane suggests walking to a nearby bus stop. As they wait, the Doctor notices that there is no presence of any other vehicles or people. They move off, and a short while later a car comes towards them, which they try and flag down. However, it speeds past them and they continue on towards the city on foot. They notice the city streets and shops are empty of activity and are covered in litter. They come across the car that sped past them and discover the driver inside a nearby jeweller's. He pulls a gun on them and orders them to get back whilst he flees with a bag of jewellery. Sarah Jane calls the police but there is no answer. They hear a monstrous roar followed by a crash and they rush to investigate. They find the car with its front completely smashed in and the driver's bloodied and mangled body at the ground beside it. They go to a nearby police station carrying the bag of stolen jewellery but find it locked. They spot a car pulling into a garage and go after it to see if the driver can provide some answers. Inside they find various stolen goods but they are attacked by a man wielding a pipe. The doctor knocks him to the ground but gets hit from behind by another man. Sergian struggles with the second man but they stop when they hear the sound of gunfire and the two men flee. Sergian helps the doctor to his feet and they make their way over to a nearby jeep. Sergian says that the doors to the outside are jammed and the doctor goes to help her. Suddenly, they are attacked by a small pterodactyl and the Doctor holds it at bay while Sarah Jane gets into the jeep. He follows her and the pterodactyl smashes through the windows of the jeep as the Doctor tries to get it started. He eventually gets it going and smashes through the doors to escape. Elsewhere, at a temporary HQ, the Brigadier and his men are keeping tabs on a slew of mysterious sightings. Yates reports that there has been an increase in the amount of looting and the Brigadier tells him to do what he can to deal with it as he needs to focus on the other problem. A short while later, General Finch who was the regular army liaison to unit, arrives and orders the brigadier to command his men to shoot the looters on sight as martial law is in effect. The brigadier refuses and says that their main focus should be on observation patrols to try and locate more of the sightings. Finch says that he cannot provide more men to that effort as they were required to feed and shelter the almost 8 million people that had been evacuated from the city. The brigadier says that once the doctor comes back they can work on finding the source of the sightings. Finch agrees to give him more men until the Doctor returns, but he says that they will follow his instructions to shoot looters on sight. At that moment, the Doctor and Sarah Jane encounter an army patrol and are stopped whilst the vehicle is searched. The bag of jewels as well as other stolen goods are discovered and they are arrested as looters and brought to a nearby detention facility. They are processed along with another looter who tells them that the military are in command because of all the monsters attacking the city. One such attack is taking place as the unit patrol is engaged with a Tyrannosaurus Rex that is rampaging through a terrace of houses but they manage to drive it away with grenades. The patrol leader radios the HQ but the connection is heavily distorted which the radio operator comments that happens every time an attack is reported. Benton suggests that the two phenomena are linked and the brigadier says that he had noticed it but says that he has no way to investigate the link. He then asks Benton to file the latest batch of looter processing forms and Benton finds the doctor and Sarah Jane's mugshots in the pile. 
The brigadier goes to collect them, but Benton reminds him of a meeting he has with Finch. He tells him to send a dispatch rider to collect them instead, as he needs Benton to help coordinate the sighting reports. Back at the detention facility, the prisoners suggest that they should try and escape, as they could be sent away for 20 years due to the military courts awaiting them. The doctor declines, and they are called to be sentenced. Sarah Jane pleads their case, and the doctor informs the officer in command of his position in unit, but the officer ignores them, thinking they are making up stories. They are to be transported to a military detention camp, and while they are awaiting, the doctor agrees to escape with the prisoner. The doctor instigates a fight between the two of them, and when the guard tries to intervene, the doctor knocks him out. However, the prisoner takes the guard's gun and tells him to leave by the front door so that he can escape out the back. The doctor kicks the gun out of his hand and knocks him out, and then flees with Sarah Jane out the back. They find an abandoned jeep, but they are recaptured when the doctor is unable to hotwire it. They are then put in the back of the jeep, as it is actually the vehicle taking them to the detention centre. En route, the jeep is stopped, and they look out of the hatch to see a T-Rex blocking the road. Part 2 the security escort gets out to try and fight off the T-Rex and the Doctor and Sarah Jane use the distraction as a chance to escape. They enter a nearby shed where the Doctor looks for something to open their handcuffs. They theorise as to where the T-Rex and the pterodactyl could have come from but suddenly a man rushes from the shallows to get at the door. The man, who appears to be wearing medieval style clothing, threatens the Doctor with a knife and calls him a wizard. The man demands to be sent back to his own time which he reveals is during the reign of Richard I. And when the doctor says that he can't help, the man attacks him. The doctor gets knocked back and Sarah Jane struggles with him for the control of the knife. The doctor then watches in amazement as their struggle seems to reverse itself and the man goes back to his position by the door before vanishing completely. Sarah Jane, unaware of what has happened, asks the doctor what happened and he says in a fascinated tone that they just experienced a time eddy. Sarah Jane then hears soldiers approaching and they prepare to ambush them as they come through the door but stop when they realise it is the brigadier. They are brought back to the temporary HQ where the Brigadier explains the dinosaurs first started appearing right after they went back in time to save the missing scientists. He informs them about the evacuation and says that so far the appearances have only occurred in central London. He then says that the creatures seem to disappear shortly after each encounter and when Sarah Jane asks where they go, the Doctor says they go back to their own time period. Suddenly Finch arrives with Yates and he demands to know where the Doctor has been. The Doctor is not impressed with Finch's authoritative demeanour but the Brigadier informs him that Finch is in command of the situation and then explains the Doctor's theory about the dinosaurs. Finch is dismissive of the theory and suggests that someone is breeding the creatures but Sarah Jane supports the Doctor's theory by recounting their experience with the medieval man. Finch tries to get her removed due to her civilian status but the Doctor says that she is his assistant and therefore can stay. A new report comes in and Finch orders artillery to be brought up to kill it but the Doctor counters him by saying that they need to capture the dinosaur alive so they can study it. The Doctor and the Brigadier arrive at the location where the dinosaur was spotted and is currently being monitored by a patrol. They watch as a Segosaurus walks into view and the Doctor goes up for a closer look. He says that they will need rope and a heavy net to capture it so they can bring it back to the HQ to study it. However, just as they are about to capture it, another time idea occurs and the Doctor watches as the dinosaur disappears and the Brigadier and his men reverse their actions. Back at the HQ, Yates is recounting the incident in Wales to Sarah Jane and he says that he had to take time off to recover. Sarah Jane comments on the strangeness of seeing London empty and Yates admits that he likes it, commenting on the freshness of the air and the emergence of wildlife in the city. A short while later, the Doctor and Brigadier return to inform Finch what happened and again he is sceptical due to the fact that the Doctor seems to be the only witness. The Doctor explains the nature of the time eddy and again Finch dismisses him, refuting the possibility of time travel. The Brigadier suggests entertaining the notion and asks the Doctor what to do next. 
The doctor says they need to capture one of the dinosaurs and study it to see if they can find the source of the appearances. Yates says the whole area is evacuated, but the doctor insists someone is still in the city and is behind the events. In a secret facility, two scientists are monitoring several large pieces of equipment in preparation for the next appearance. One of them, Whitaker, insists they need to focus on their main goal, but the other one, Butler, says they need to ensure that all the appearances keep on schedule to distract the authorities from finding them. At the HQ, Yates watches as the doctor works on a device to disrupt the dinosaurs' brains so that they can fall unconscious. Yates asks how it will help, and the doctor says that once it's unconscious, he can analyse for an energy signature that will lead him to whoever is behind the appearances. Yates then goes to leave, but stops when Sarah Jane enters, complaining that Finch is trying to get her evacuated. Yates says that he'll arrange a temporary pass for her, and she then asks the doctor if she can help, but he tells her to leave. Put out, she says that she will go to chat with Yates. The doctor blocks the door to prevent further interruptions, but the brigadier enters via a side door and asks what he's up to. He then introduces a man named Grover, who is a ministry member with executive powers. The doctor recognises him as an ardent environmentalist and enthusiastically greets him before showing him what he's working on. Grover expresses his admiration for the doctor's bravery and asks his opinion as to the reason behind the appearances. The doctor says that someone wants London to be evacuated so they can implement some grand plan that can't be achieved in a more isolated area. Benton then arrives and says that a brontosaurus has been spotted and the doctor and the brigadier go with him to use the doctor's device, which is a type of stun gun. Meanwhile, at the secret facility, Yates arrives and reveals the doctor's plan to Whitaker and Butler. Whitaker tells Yates to deal with the doctor, but he refuses to harm him or have him come to harm even though he wants their project, which is called Operation Golden Age, to succeed. Whitaker relents and instead gives Yates something to render the doctor's stun gun inoperable. He arrives at the site of the newest appearance a while before the doctor and the brigadier do. Yates asks if there's any danger if the stun gun fails, and the doctor says that the brontosauruses are generally passive, so he should be safe. Yates then offers to collect the stun gun from the brigadier's jeep, where he attaches the component Whitaker gave him to it. He gives it to the doctor who approaches the dinosaur, as the brigadier tells his men to prepare a covering fire in case things go wrong. The doctor tries his stun gun, but finds it doesn't work, and watches as the brontosaurus disappears into another time eddy. Suddenly, a T-Rex appears behind him, and the brigadier orders his men to lay down covering fire, which only angers it as it approaches the Doctor. Part 3 The Doctor runs for safety, but drops his stun gun, leaving him at the mercy of the T-Rex. Yates dashes forward and picks up the stun gun, removing Whitaker's component from it, and then uses it to render the dinosaur unconscious. Later, at the secret facility, Yates confronts Whitaker over the fact that he lied to him and summoned the T-Rex to kill the Doctor. Yates asks to be given a chance to win the Doctor over to their cause, but Whitaker and Butler say that he is too dangerous to trust. They tell Yates that he needs to go to where the creature is being kept and sabotage the Doctor's analysis equipment, assuring him that no harm will befall the Doctor this time. He reluctantly agrees, but after he leaves, they voice their uncertainty over Yates' loyalty. At a warehouse, the Doctor ensures the unconscious T-Rex is securely tied up and then joins the Brigadier and Sarah Jane in an office, and he tells them that all they can do now is wait until it disappears. Sarah Jane then voices her opinion that someone else has managed to crack the theory of time travel and informs him of Whitaker's work in that area. The Brigadier recognises the name and remembers that he had previously applied for a large government grant but was refused. They inform the Doctor that he was notorious for his poor relationships with other scientists and Sarah Jane says that six months ago he seemingly disappeared. The Doctor thinks that she could be onto something and the Brigadier says he will get Whitaker's files for them. The Doctor then asks for a lift back to the HQ to collect some equipment from the recently recovered TARDIS. Before they go, Sarah Jane asks to be allowed to photograph the proceedings but the Brigadier refuses on security grounds. 
After they leave, Yates arrives to sabotage the equipment. At the HQ, Grover gives the Doctor and the others some information on Whitaker. Grover says that Whitaker was a crank, but Sarah Jane counters this by saying that Whitaker's colleagues, as well as several scientific publications, all labelled him as a brilliant scientist. Grover then asks to hear more about the Doctor's experiment, and the Brigadier leads him to his office. After they leave, Sarah Jane voices her annoyance at the fact that Grover is ignoring their only lead, and Finch asks what she intends to do about it. She says that she will continue to investigate the lead, and then mentions the Brigadier's refusal to let her take some photos. Finch says that she needs a special army pass to be given that permission, and offers to have one given to her at his own HQ. He gives her a note to give to his driver, who will take her to the HQ, and she thanks him. A short while later, the Doctor and the Brigadier return to find the room empty, and the Doctor wonders where she has gone, and the Brigadier informs him that she was spotted leaving in Finch's car when he places a call for a jeep to bring the Doctor back to the warehouse. At the warehouse, Sarah Jane, with her newfound permission slip, starts to take photos of the T-Rex, but unknowingly causes it to begin waking up due to the camera's flash. She goes into the room where the T-Rex is to take some close-up shots, and then screams as it starts to rise up. She tries to flee, but finds the door out of the office locked from the outside. The T-Rex whips its tail towards the office and breaks through the window, causing a piece of the ceiling to fall and knocks Sarah Jane out. The Doctor suddenly appears and pulls her to safety as the T-Rex starts to rampage through the warehouse. He brings her to his jeep and they leave just as the dinosaur breaks through the warehouse wall. At the HQ, the Doctor treats Sarah Jane's head wound whilst she informs them that someone intended for her to die when they locked her in. Benton and another soldier arrive with the Doctor's equipment and Benton shows them that the chains that held the T-Rex and they can see that they were all sabotaged. The Doctor then says that the machine was also sabotaged and the Brigadier tells the soldier to leave and once he is gone, the Doctor says that there is a traitor in unit. They realise that the trap was for the Doctor and not for Sarah Jane. The Doctor says he will build a portable device to try and track down the source of the appearances but admits that it won't be as accurate or as powerful as the one he had previously built. Sarah Jane asks about the power required to cause the appearances and the Doctor says it would most likely require a small scale nuclear generator. She suggests that they try searching that way, but the Brigadier says that he's already tried but found nothing. The Doctor suggests that she get some rest while he goes to work on the TARDIS, and the Brigadier leaves Benton to look after Sarah Jane while he goes to meet with Finch. Sarah Jane is adamant that there must be an undocumented reactor at work, and that is why the Brigadier wasn't able to locate it. She asks for some transport so she can go to investigate, and after some reluctance, Benton agrees to help her. She goes to Grover's office and asks him about the proposed fallout shelters that would house the government in the event of an atomic war. He says that the plans were made to construct the shelters and power them with nuclear generators, but they were shelved when the Cold War de-escalated. She suggests that someone actually built the shelters unnoticed and Grover says it is possible and agrees to help her look through the records to find any information. They eventually find documents and a map leading to the bunker. Suddenly, Grover opens a secret panel in the wall that leads down a corridor, revealing that he knew about its presence all along. He tells the shocked Sarah Jane to go on ahead of him. Meanwhile, the Doctor asks Benton about her, and he says that she told him to tell the Doctor that she went out to play, a message that only confuses the Time Lord. In the secret facility, Sarah Jane demands to know why Grover, alongside the recently arrived butler, had been bringing dinosaurs to London, and he says that she will find out in due course. The two men leave the room, and Sarah Jane with nothing to do but wait, sits down. Suddenly the room begins to fill with flashing lights and despite her best efforts to avoid them, she falls under her, their hypnotic spell. She then wakes up in a futuristic looking room and is greeted by a man named Mark. He reveals that she is on a spaceship that is currently en route to the, the planet that will be the crew's new home. He shows her 
to a nearby portal where she could see an unknown planet before them and then he reveals that they left Earth three months ago. Part 4 Finch arrives and gives out to the Brigadier about the T-Rex's escape as well as Sarah Jane's near-death experience. He also demands to know why the Doctor is still on hand since his plan failed but the Doctor shows him the sabotage chains. He then asks the Brigadier to take him to his new car and after they have gone Yates confronts Finch over the fact that he only sabotaged the equipment and demands to know what is going on. Outside, the Doctor leaves in his new vehicle, which is a jet-propelled hover car, and begins to search for any time eddies with his new equipment. Meanwhile, on the spaceship, Sarah Jane is introduced to two of the ship's elders, whom she recognises as Lady Collingford, a staunch environmentalist, and Nigel Castle, a prominent novelist. She also recognises Mark as John Crichton, an accomplished Olympic athlete. They reveal that they have left their past lives behind them and are part of a fleet of ships that are en route to the new planet, which is to be known as New Earth. They are going to start over humanity and ensure that it doesn't develop the same way that it did before. They inform Sarah Jane that she was in stasis along with the rest of the crew for the last three months. She is overwhelmed by the information and puts her hand to her head where she notices the injury she received in the warehouse that still hasn't healed. Back in London, the Doctor has managed to locate the energy signature of a time eddy and follows it into an abandoned tube station. He starts to look around but is forced to hide when he hears someone approaching. Butler enters the station and summons a secret lift that is disguised as a maintenance cupboard, which brings him to the secret facility. The Doctor then summons the lift but is noticed by Butler and Whitaker in their control room. They watch two security cameras as he follows the signpost to the reactor room. They manage to herd him back to the lift by dropping the security doors at various sections, leaving him with no choice but to leave. With the Doctor gone, the rogue scientists summon a pterodactyl to attack him, but he manages to fight it off with a mop, allowing him to escape back to his vehicle. On the spaceship, Sarah Jane confronts Lady Collingford, who now goes by the name Root, about the authoritative utopia that they are seeking to build. Nigel, who now goes by the name Adam, is confused by her viewpoints as he believed everyone that was selected for the mission had similar ideals. Sarah Jane says that she was kidnapped, but Root and Adam are concerned that her radical views could disrupt the morale of the crew, and they decide to take her for re-education. She is then forced to watch a video package narrated by Butler that shows the horrors of industrial pollution and the effects that it has had on the planet. Mark brings her some food, and again Sarah Jane insists that she was kidnapped against her will, but he tells her to keep watching the video. Mark then goes to talk to Adam and Root, who say that if the re-education fails, then she will have to be killed. The doctor returns to the tube station with the brigadier, but when he opens the maintenance cupboard, he sees that it's completely different and the activation switch for the lift is gone. They then go to Grover's office to talk to him about the secret facility. Grover tells them that he and Sarah Jane went through the files but could find no record of the facility's construction. He produces the proposed files, which confirm that the construction of the facility was abandoned, but the doctor refuses to believe it. He then asks after Sarah Jane, and Grover says that she was dropped back to the HQ, bringing in his chauffeur to confirm the story. Unbeknownst to them, the chauffeur is actually Butler. After they leave, Grover and Butler go down to the facility where they join Finch and Yates as they listen to Whittaker as he says that the reactor has reached full power and the countdown to the final phase of their plan will soon begin. Grover says that once their plan is over, they can bring the colonists out of the spaceship to their new home. Finch then says that they need to eliminate the Doctor as he is a threat to their plans, but Yates refuses to have him killed. Grover agrees and says that Finch will use his authority to block any continued investigations by the Brigadier whilst they come up with a way to discredit the Doctor. At the HQ, the Doctor tells the Brigadier that Grover is involved with the conspiracy and they need to act fast before it comes to fruition. He suggests going back to the tube station with explosives in order to access the secret lift shaft in the facility, 
The Brigadier says that he will need to get Finch's permission, who will have to get permission from Grover, which he says will lead to nowhere if the Doctor's suspicions are true. Nevertheless, he leaves to call Finch, and after he goes, Benton enters, saying that there was a call for the Doctor. The caller reveals himself to be Whittaker, who says that he was tricked into causing the dinosaurs to appear by Grover. He says he will meet the Doctor at the warehouse where the T-Rex was held, but asks him to come alone due to his fear as he is being watched. The Doctor agrees and arrives at the warehouse to find it empty, save for a strange piece of equipment. Whittaker, who is still at the facility, then springs his trap and summons a Stegosaurus. Just then, Finch arrives with some men and the Brigadier, and Finch proclaims that the Doctor is the one behind the dinosaurs. Part 5 on the spaceship, Sarah Jane is ignoring the video showing the devastation that humanity has done to the Earth. Mark comes in and warns her about the Elder's plans for her if she resists the re-education video. She suddenly says that her time in suspended animation must have affected her thinking and asks Mark to bring her to them. However, she elbows him in the stomach as after he opens the door and she rushes outside making sure to lock him in. Meanwhile, the Doctor is brought back to the HQ under guard and Finch orders him to be locked up. The Brigadier says that they should question him first, but Finch says that there is no time for that as he needs to speak to Grover. The Doctor, suspecting that Finch is also in on the conspiracy, says that the evacuation can now be called off, but Finch says that he needs to get permission for that. He orders Yates to lock up the Doctor and tells the Brigadier to come with him so they can inform Grover together. Once they are gone, the Doctor requests that Yates help him go back to the tube station to find the facility, but Yates orders Benton to lock him up. The Doctor realises that Yates was the traitor. Yates leaves and Benton orders the guards to prepare a cell for the Doctor and after they have gone he asks what's going on. The Doctor reveals Yates' parts in the conspiracy and Benton says that he should overpower him so that he can escape. Thankful for Benton's help, he gently renders him unconscious before fleeing. In the secret facility, Grover reveals the Doctor's capture to Whitaker and Butler who say that they are ready to proceed with their plan which is to reverse time on the planet so that it will go back to a period where man didn't exist and can now be remade by the chosen colonists. On the spaceship, Sarah Jane makes her way to a control panel but discovers that none of the controls actually do anything. She then goes back to the video room and asks Mark to come with her so she can show him the control panel. She tries to get Mark to believe her that the whole thing is fake, pointing out the long time it would take to get to a new planet as well as the injury on her head. When he doesn't believe her, she says that she will open the airlock to prove it's a lie. Mark watches as she climbs through the airlock and he then covers for her when Adam comes asking about her, saying that she is still watching the video. Back at the HQ, Benton is being questioned by Finch about the Doctor's escape and sentences him to be court-martialed before giving the Brigadier orders that the Doctor shot on sight. He then leaves with Yates and once they are gone, Benton tells the Brigadier where the Doctor has gone and he orders Benton to prepare the men that are still loyal to him. Meanwhile, the Doctor is driving a unit jeep through the city, careful to avoid the patrols out looking for him. He is forced to drive out of the city when he spots a search helicopter following him and he leads it into a nearby woods. He gets out of the jeep and the soldiers pursuing him do so likewise in order to search the area for him. He sneaks back to the jeeps of the soldiers and tricks the helicopter pilot into calling off the search. In the secret facility, Sarah Jane comes across Whitaker and Butler as they are preparing the final checks of their time machine. She then makes her way to the lift that brings her up to the filing room next to Grover's office. She makes her way to the HQ and demands to know where the brigadier is. She is told about the doctor's guilt and the effort to capture him and she leaves a note for the brigadier. Suddenly Finch arrives and Sarah Jane, not realising that he is part of the conspiracy, tells him everything that she knows. He is sceptical of her story and she offers to prove it to him by showing him the secret facility. However, once they arrive at the secret lift, Finch reveals his part of the conspiracy and leads her to the control room where Grover is with Whitaker. 
Grover tells them to get the brigadier to remove the last of his troops so they don't engage with the next batch of dinosaurs about to be summoned to the area. He tells Sarah Jane their plan, but she voices her disgust at it, likening it to genocide. She then watches helplessly as Whitaker summons more dinosaurs into the city, one of which is a T-Rex that appears right in front of the Doctor as he makes his way to the tube station. Part 6 The Doctor's jeep stalls and is forced to exit it as the T-Rex approaches him. The Doctor takes cover in the doorway and watches as the T-Rex passes him and attacks a brontosaurus that appears at the other end of the road. The Doctor uses the battle as a chance to escape, but he is caught by Finch as he arrives in an army jeep. The Brigadier and Benton arrive in another jeep a few moments later, and the Brigadier insists that the Doctor is a prisoner of unit. When Finch demands that the Doctor be handed over to him, the Brigadier has Benton hold a gun on him to decide the matter. Finch claims it is mutiny, but the Brigadier says that he is simply doing his job, and Finch backs down, but orders that the Doctor be put under close arrest before departing. They arrive back at the HQ where they find the base being dismantled at the order of Finch. The Doctor reveals the full extent of the conspiracy, but the Brigadier refuses to believe that Yates is part of it. The Doctor then notices the note that was left by Sarah Jane, and the Doctor uses it to convince him to spring into action. The Brigadier says he will call Unit HQ at Geneva to force the government to act, but the Doctor says it will take too long and he need to attack the tube station immediately. Benton informs the Brigadier that he has Geneva on the line, but Yates enters the room and holds them all at gunpoint before cancelling the call. Yates then reveals the goal of the conspiracy, and the Doctor says that their goal is an illusion as history will most likely repeat itself. The Doctor explains how the time reversal will take place and that a protective field will stop anyone within it from being erased from existence. Yates says he doesn't know how far the field extends and reveals to an amazed Benton that he is willing to die for their cause. The Doctor then expresses his sympathies towards the ideals of the conspiracy but says that they cannot justify the erasure of billions of lives. Instead, he says that they should work towards bettering the world that they already have. Just then, a soldier arrives carrying tea and Benton uses the distraction to disarm and incapacitate Yates. In the secret facility, Sarah Jane is locked into a storage cupboard by Butler so that she can't cause any problems. After he leaves, she spots a grating on the wall and manages to pry it open and crawls into the air ducts. She makes her way back to the spaceship where Adam and Mark are waking up more of the crew. Ruth enters and says that Sarah Jane is missing and they go to look for her. Mark spots Sarah Jane hiding nearby and goes to ask her what she found out. Mark is aghast at the lie and Sarah Jane says they need to tell the others the truth. However, they refuse to believe what she says and Root and Adam return in the middle of the argument. Mark tries to convince Adam of the truth, but Root says that they are a corruptive influence and she has them taken away. Disturbed by the revelation, Adam tests the control panel to communicate with the other ships and he is put at ease when he gets through and asks to speak to Grover. This is related to Grover, who dresses in a spacesuit and enters the airlock to help keep up the pretense. He then goes to interrogate Sarah Jane and Mark, where he admits the ruse, but little does he know that Adam is eavesdropping on them. Meanwhile, the Doctor and the Brigadier make their way to the tube station with a cache of explosives, but being careful to avoid the wandering dinosaurs. They arrive to find the entrance blocked by a stegosaurus, but the Brigadier manages to drive it away with a grenade. They make their way down into the maintenance closet, where the Doctor starts to rig up the explosives. Suddenly, a triceratops emerges from the rail tunnel, and the Brigadier keeps it occupied with a flare. The Doctor finishes and blows up the lift shaft. He then goes on by himself but tells the Brigadier to summon reinforcements that Benton, who was left in the command of the HQ, was ordered to organise. The Brigadier radios to Benton and tells him to send whatever he has. Unbeknownst to him, Benton is being held at gunpoint by Finch, who refuses to let him send the reinforcements. Knowing that the duo are in danger, Benton attacks Finch and a struggle ensues between the two. 
In the spaceship, Adam frees Sarah Jane and Mark, and the trio make their way back to the common area where they manage to convince Root to let Sarah Jane go out the airlock. The ruse is revealed much to the dismay of the, everyone, but they all exit the spaceship. They arrive at the control room where they tell Grover to stop, and they will go, not go along with his plan. Grover tries to win them over, but it is no use, and the Doctor enters, followed by the Brigadier and Benton and the reinforcements. Suddenly Whitaker pulls the lever on the machine, and the rest of the room is frozen as time begins to reverse. The Doctor, being a Time Lord, is able to resist its effects and manages to reverse the switch and stop the process. He starts to tinker with the machine, but Grover dashes forward to try and activate it again. Whitaker tries to stop him as he knows that the Doctor has reversed the machine's polarity, but it is no use and both of them are sent back into the prehistoric area along with the machine. Later, at the Unit HQ, the Doctor and the others discuss Grover's goal and they realise that steps need to be taken to ensure the survival of Earth. The Brigadier says that Yates has been given sick leave which will allow him to tender his resignation and keep his dignity. He leaves to prepare for Finch's court-martial and reminds a slightly too enthusiastic Benton not to make a habit out of punching out generals. After they leave, the Doctor and Sarah Jane jokingly comment on their recent adventures, but she says that she won't go back into the TARDIS anytime soon. The Doctor, sensing her to be a new travelling companion, tries to convince her to go with him to the paradise world of Florana, and she laughs as she tries to resist his description of the idyllic world. End of the story. So that is the epic story of Jurassic Park. Sorry, I mean Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a couple of Jurassic Park moments in that, like the Brigadier with the flare and the Triceratops. Yeah, I, I do is... wonder if uh, the people who made Jurassic World, Jurassic World, the first one, uh, when they were having Bryce Dallas Howard have her yeah. flare moment, I wonder if they were like, <laughs> do you remember that one episode of Doctor Who where Nicholas Courtney yeah. went against a rubber dinosaur with a flare? Yeah. And for anyone that's interested, the Triceratops is and always has been my favourite dinosaur. Really? Yep, I've always loved Triceratops. I have a thing for Brontosaurus, just because it's a little foot. Except, wasn't it like revealed like a few years ago that Brontosaurus didn't actually exist? No, it's... Is it Brachiosauruses don't exist? I don't know. Basically, like, I remember like seeing an article saying that like, Littlefoot wasn't real, meaning like the species that they portray him as wasn't actually real. Uh, no, I think what it is is that, like, so the the thing that Brigadier try or not the Benton tries to call the Brontosaurus like an apatosaurus, yeah. that is a real thing. Mm. But I think a Brontosaurus was some was like was an incorrect description. I think it is just an apatos an apatosaurus is the the actual thing. I think okay. as long as Littlefoot is real, that's the important part. Yeah, Littlefoot is always real. <laughs> oh God, no, no God, Littlefoot. Oh. <laughs> uh. Should I get on to trivia <laughs> about the actual yes. story as opposed yeah, to so, something less something less depressing than fucking poor old Littlefoot. <laughs> okay, so the air date for the story is the 12th of January to the 16th of February 1974. The writer is Malcolm Hulk. This is the final story written by Malcolm. He previously wrote The Faceless Ones with David Ellis, The War Games with Terence Dix, Doctor Who and the Silurians. He had some uncredited rewrites for The Ambassadors of Death. He also did Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, and Frontier in Space. So, fairly decent uh, representation there uh, from Malcolm. And and there's a good, there's a theme there, if you think about it, like for a fair amount of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, 
there's a couple of themes in there actually because you have obviously the the older species and like the the golden age type stuff with sea devils and silurians yeah. and stuff um you also have like the sort of anti mining anti you know industry in terms of quality and space and so on and then like there's obviously like the anti-war component because mm. you've got frontier and war games yeah. and yeah. Uh, this was actually his favorite script though Mm. So, uh, the TARDIS wiki had a quote, which is, I decided what I wanted to do and came up with a lovely idea of the golden age with all these people behind it who just who just didn't fit in. There were lots of rather sad people always living in the past and who wanted to run back and who wanted to turn back the clock. I think they were totally wrong in their thinking, but I liked the story. It's easily my favourite because I felt it was the way a lot of people feel left out or left behind by things changing, which I think is a very sweet way of looking at it. It is, and like there's, when we're getting into the character discussion, like we'll probably be echoing certain of certain parts of those sentiments. Mm. I think as well, like just you know, getting way ahead of ourselves in terms of the overall, it does still speak to people today. Like how many people are looking into you know tiny living and cabin life and mm. even van life and you know this whole idea of you know going back to simple living it is clearly something that people are still very very interested in but even if you think back to like the start of the lockdowns the global lockdowns mm. when like air travel was restricted mm. it kind of echoed what Yates said like oh the air is fresher and stuff like that everything like the clouds just or even the sky just looked cleaner yeah you know? and like there was like, there was, like of, you know the whole idea of like you know seeing whales and dolphins in areas that we don't usually see them and stuff like that so it, it yeah. is very it is still it is still relevant today i think mm-hmm. uh, the director for the story is paddy russell this is the second of four directing credits for paddy we previously discussed her work back in the massacre when she became the first mm-hmm. female director of doctor who we'll see her work again in pyramids of virus and horror fang rock not to give too much of my final thoughts away but like throughout them all i have an appreciation of paddy russell's work on the show oh me too uh, she she contributed some amazing stuff to the show. Yeah. Working titles for the story were Bridgehead from Space, which I think is a bit too much like Spearhead from Space. <laughs> yeah. And Time Scoop, which is fairly on the nose. Yeah. Although like, so um, is Invasion of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> but but no, but see, that's the thing. Like that first episode, like the suspense and the whole mist. Like if you did not know that there was a dinosaur involved. Like, what the fuck happened well, to that most people didn't know, guy? right? Because this is my next point, right? So, part one uh, of the story actually had the title Invasion. So, mm. people wouldn't know it would be Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The extended title mm. was only added in episode two, or part two. Oh. However, Radio Times kind of fucked it up, because they included a black and white illustration accompanying the program listing, Showing the Doctor being attacked by the pterodactyl. So if you read it in Radio Times, you knew what the giveaway was. If you hadn't seen it in Radio Times, though, you don't know until the pterodactyl attack what the invasion is. Like, there are certain times where, like, the -the on-the-nose title of a story, like, you know, sometimes, like, Genesis of the Daleks, Mm. for example. I think, you know, that's um, that's a cool one. Far, mm. you know, uh, because you know, you get like what, like 
two minutes into the episode, and it's like we're on Scarrow at the start of the Daleks. Like so, it's like all right. But then you have Revenge of the Cybermen, which we hadn't seen Cybermen in so long, and then you have Revenge. It's like oh, they're fucking okay. Well, we know what's happening. But like, but like, I like the the start, like the first ten minutes of the story, like even the first like yeah fifteen, the mystery surrounding everything. It's amazing. Like, I was really into it. At the same time, like, I'm like, yeah, for fuck's sake, I know it's a dinosaur that's causing this. <laughs> so, with the first episode, so part one, having its own title as mm. such, before it got the full prolonged title, it's actually the first episode to bear an individual title since the OK Corral, which was the last one to have an individual title. Ah. That's the last time we were fucking talking about that story. <laughs> no, it's not. Fucking <laughs> better <laughs> Um, so the color transmission master tapes for this serial were wiped were there to be wiped and reused the only one that actually was though was part one hmm. so the serial was incomplete in the archives but in 1983 a black and white telerecord of invasion was found and returned so depending on what version you have you would have seen episode or part one. I'm going to keep saying episode one, but part one in black and white. However, which is what I did for the DVD release. It was recolored, so I watched episode one in color. However, I will say now to anyone listening, you need to go into the special features and turn color part one on because it's off by default. I've had that DVD for years, and yesterday was the first time I fucking watched that episode in color. <laughs> Because I didn't know it was there. Because the main special features are on disc two, so I never went into the special features of this one. I must look at that because there's two parts in the story that I think having the black and white really adds to it. Mm. One is when the pterodactyl attacks. I think that's I think that's cool. And the second one though is when they see the 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 jewel thief's like mangled body on the side of the road because he's got blood all over Mm. him, and it's like we talked before about you know how. In black and white versus colour stuff can appear more violent. I'll tell you one thing. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I watched the black and white. Yeah. Both of those were quite effective in colour though. Cool, perfect. Particularly right. the mangled body, if I'm honest. It was right. really quite effective. But yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a load of mine at some point and you can, you can watch it in colour. Awesome. So, we see a new piece of Doctor Tech. Well, a new vehicle. In the form of the Who-Mobile. Okay, so this weird spaceship-looking car is only called called the Who-Mobile by fans. It's never actually called that yeah. on the show, no. but it's what everyone calls it. To the point where like, even like BBC people refer to it as the Who-Mobile. Um, this is the first time it was seen on screen. Uh, it was commissioned for John Pertwee, basically. His love of gadgetry and spy culture in general meant that they gave him the new car. However, Bessie is still around. And we'll see more as the season goes on. Bessie is still kind of the main vehicle. And then there's this one as well. But that car was actually roadworthy. Like, they drove it around. And we, we talked about Bessie that, like, the number plate on Bessie, the Who won, is actually fake. And they have to close the roads whenever Bessie is driving mm. because that's not actually the registered license yeah. plate number. The license plate number on the Who-Mobile is the registered license plate number. So they, they can actually drive that. I, I've seen like pictures of it and like some video clips of it of like, at, like I think it was like for turning on the lights at Blackpool or something. Like John Party would yeah. actually drive it down the street. 
I, I think when he did it for like publicity events, he drove it like mm. th- the thing is like it's got such like a fucking DeLorean like aesthetic to it. It's it's like, a, it looks like a, it looks like a UFO on the ground, and it, the t- the great part of it is there's one there's one shot, and I kind of wish Paddy Russell hadn't included it. But for the most part, you're watching it at kind of eye level. Yeah. And it looks like it's hovering. And it obviously mm. makes the noise as if it's hovering. But there's one shot, I think it's when it's pulling up to the underground station. And Paddy yeah. shoots it low. So you can see the wheels. And I was like, oh, yeah. you should have kept it high. And people would have thought it was like a hovercraft thing. Um, But yeah. So at one point in the story, uh, Sarah Jane says that she's 23. Right, mm-hmm. this if we're going this is going back to dating controversies now again. If we're taking the date of birth that's given in the episode of whatever happened to Sarah Jane of the Sarah Jane Adventures, where we see her date of birth, uh, this would make this story take place in 1974, because mm. Sarah Jane was born in 1951. Yes. So again, had they just left that line in last week, <laughs> the unitation controversy would be less of a problem. So, Mike Yates. Um, yes. Terence wanted to kill him. <laughs> Terence thought that Yates might be killed off during the story, but it was Barry who said, look, they may want to revisit the character in a future story, so just mm. retire him off the side. So, an interesting thing I always find with this story, so, Paddy knows this, I have an obsession with Sarah Jane's clothes. Right? Mm-hmm. I have a Someone online years ago made a top Trumps game of Sarah Jane's outfits and I still have it printed off in card protectors as opposite me right now. Yep, and I've still never beaten you at it. Nope. <laughs> I always get the Andy Pandy I put and the Andy Pandy I put always wins. Anyway, mm-hmm. I really liked her primary outfit last week. So yes. the slacks with like the sweater and the jacket. It looks really cool. I liked it less this week. It's the exact same outfit. Right, she she replaces her blazer with a leather jacket later on, but that's irrelevant. With the blazer, I like this outfit a little bit less. All right. For one reason. <laughs> it's a reason that the production team wasn't a big fan of either. I mentioned last week that there's three months off between the filming of Time Warrior and this one. Mm. And this lady went and cut her hair. <laughs> so this story is meant to take up immediately after the Time Warrior. But apparently, somewhere between like medieval times and 1974, hmm. Sarah got a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> um, she would eventually start growing her hair out, but this caused more issues. Down the- it, 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 she shouldn't have cut her hair, basically. Hmm. And it caused a whole load of issues, just from a continuity perspective i don't think most people care and particularly in modern day where a lot of people watch these stories out of order and like they'll just pick up like yeah. pick something off the shelf and watch it um but yeah she cut her hair in between seasons and apparently when she arrived up they literally were like what the fuck did you do no like i like continuity errors like for me are they're really really bu- like bug me mm. like because it's 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 just like i think one example is uh, Killian Murphy mm. like he shot two movies around the same time he shot Red Eye and Breakfast on Pluto mm. and for Breakfast on Pluto he plays a I believe it's a transvestite character mm. so he had shaped eyebrows mm. so when you're watching Red Eye 
in one scene he has the shaped eyebrows and in the other scene he's got very thick eyebrows <laughs> <laughs> like this is really fucking annoying okay let's go on to our cat oh no wait no we have one person before I forget um mm-hmm. private Bryson uh the private we see in the final episode he was ad- mm. or in the final two parts actually he was added when George Bryson who played private Ogden <laughs> who was manning the the radio for the first four episodes he mm. was unavailable for the studio recording of episodes five and six so they replaced him and just called the character Bryson because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> of George Bryson which I think is what are we doing uh, like, I actually like, thought that character was kind of funny like, you know, sir are we leaving or not just oh go make some tea <laughs> <laughs> I, I, twice I quite liked um, Ogden as well he's quite cool yeah okay let's go on to our cast proper though so as General Finch, we have John Bennett. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for John. We'll see him again in the talents of Wen Cheyenne. His non-Who credits include Watership Down, Minority Report, The Infinite Worlds of H.G. Wells, Zedkars, Dixon of Doc Green, Crown Court, and The Fifth Element. In The Fifth Element, he is the priest who gets the key oh, when the, at the he, very beginning. He's the, the, the initial priest, uh, the Padre Pio looking yeah. guy. That's exactly what he looks like. Yeah. I actually remember him as the prison doctor in the very first episode of Porridge. Uh, Which, again, is another great episode of Porridge, and he's just really funny in it. John sadly passed away in 2005. Professor Whitaker is played by Peter Miles. This is the second of three appearances for Peter. We previously saw him in Doctor Who and the Silurians, and we'll see him again in Genesis of the Daleks. Two stories we've already talked about today. Yeah, he... The man is like, I think he's like the most typecast, <laughs> repetitive actor or reoccurring actor in all of who. Charles Grover is played by Noel Johnson. Again, second appearance in Doctor Who for Noel this time around. And this is his final appearance. We previously saw him as Faust in The Underwater Menace. So it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Mark is played by Terence Wilton. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Terence. His non-Who credits include Anne of a Thousand Days, The Bill and The Tragedy of King Richard II. I was convinced I knew him from somewhere. His face looks so familiar, but I was going through his IMDb. I was like, I recognise none of the shit. <laughs> like, I obviously, I never watched The Bill. I'm, I'm familiar with what The Bill is, but yeah. I never watched it. He does have that quintessential, like, 70s British actor face. He does. And then I was like, was he maybe in Porridge or something? And I was like, maybe that's what I'm going to... No. Adam is played by Brian Badco. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Brian. His non-Who credits include Operation Diplomat, the funniest title I've ever seen in a while, which is Fanny by Gaslight, which is just hilarious. <laughs> 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 uh, let's continue. Deadline Midnight, Emmerdale Farm, The Shadow of the Tower, and The Avengers. Oh, Brian sorry. passed away in 1992. Lastly, as a root, we have Carmen Silvera. We previously saw Carmen several times in The Celestial Toymaker, where she was Clara the Clown, Mrs. Wiggs, and the Queen of Hearts. This is Carmen's final Doctor Who appearance. I'm, I, she's an LO LO. She is, yeah. She's, we talked about this yeah. when we talked about Celestial Toymaker, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to put like, obviously, from Celestial Toymaker, she's wearing an awful lot of makeup, and unfortunately, it's all still episodes. Yeah. The cheese in. Yeah, that's true. Right. 
thank you as always for the lovely trivia. You're welcome. So on to the next part, which is the character discussion. So as always, we will be discussing the Doctor, the companions, any prominent characters that showed up, and the villains. So this week we have the Doctor. We have the companions of Sarah Jane, the Brigadier, and Benton. Mm -hmm. We have the villains of Whitaker, Grover, and Finch. Now, in prominent characters, I have put down the three colonists, Root, Adam, and Mark, but I've also put Mm -hmm. down Yates. Do you think Yates fits into the prominent characters camp, or would he be more of a villain? My genuine hatred of Yates wants me to put him in the villain category. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a reason not to. Other than he didn't want to kill his friends outright, but he was perfectly happy rolling back time. So the more I think about it, yes. No, there is one other mitigating factor to the Yates thing. Mm. Which is... Um, I don't know, again, this is probably just picking up on outside knowledge and stuff like that, but there is, like, what happened to him in Wales. That That doesn't matter. That That, fucked with his head. That that, that doesn't matter. Okay, so... (laughs) I I don't think that matters. We'll get to that. Okay, how about we do this thing? We do the problem characters, we do Mark, Adam, and Ruth, and we discuss the Yates last, because he's kind of prominent into villain category. Yeah, he is the bridge that we walk over. Literally, we walk on top of him to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so... The Doctor... Do you want to go first or will I go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. Do you know, Doctor, if you actually carried your unit ID on you, instead of always having Joe carry it, she's probably taken up the Amazon at this point. Mm-hmm. A lot of the faff of this story could have been avoided. But that's bureau- but like it's just bureaucratic hogwash or something similar to what he had said once upon a time. Yeah. It also helps you not get arrested. <laughs> also helps your young journalist friend who isn't an alien who isn't native to this planet from getting arrested and having that on her record mm-hmm. so yeah he needs to carry his own id um overall though i do like him in the story mm-hmm. the one obvious like kicker is the way he is a bit dismissive of sarah mm-hmm. i will give him the benefit of that though he barely knows her and for the most part, he was just trying to protect her. Mm-hmm. Do you know, he yeah. listened to what she had to say. Kind of was a bit dismissive of it. But like, he still listened, at least. And then like, his whole like, you know, oh, let's go off and talk about this and leave Sarah to rest. She had just been attacked by a Tyrannosaurus Rex and had gotten brained in the head with a plank. Mm. So giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe? What was your read on that? Like, were you giving him the benefit of the doubt? Well, like, to be fair, like, he, uh, when she suggests searching for nuclear reactors, he's like, actually, she's got a point. Like that. Yeah, like, he does listen. He's yeah. just not I, I think, as on board with her as he maybe could have been. I think it depends on what he's doing. So, as you said, mm-hmm. like, that he, do, like, he, he barely knows her. Mm-hmm. And there's no downtime for the two of them, essentially. Like... Except for the random haircut. Yeah, except for the random haircut. But, you know, like, I don't know, maybe she walked into the wrong room, you know? <laughs> Had one of those vicious barber robots inside it. Um, but they have no downtime. Unlike other, like unlike his time with Joe, there's downtime mm. between each adventure. With yeah. the exception of Frontier into... Mm. Yeah. Um, actually, Carnival into Frontier. But whatever. Um, there's no downtime. So, 
and then he's they're immediately thrown into the middle of a crisis at which point his expertise is required so he's all about ooh gadget 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 fix 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 ooh shiny technology so he does get very dismissive of her there but as the crisis goes on and as when we talk about Sarah as her contributions to problem solving become more and more like would you please just fucking listen to me he's like actually she does have a really good point so I think part I think part of it, I think where I see the dismissive component is when it comes to the description of Whitaker, he trusts Grover over Sarah. Yeah. Cause he admire he knows of Grover mm-hmm. and he admires him from that perspective. But he doesn't know Sarah very well. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know who her contacts are or whatever. And the fact that she's got like all these contacts at the age of twenty three, like for it is. Um but like I don't is it you mean he knows he, little... he, he knows Grover. You said he knows Whitaker. Grover, yeah, yeah he knows yeah. Grover. Um it it niggles a little. Not as much because I think there's a certain level of benefit of the doubt there. Mm-hmm. But it niggles a little bit. But I think that it was intended to. Yeah. You're meant to sympathise with Sarah in the story. Yeah. I I think it's in terms of developing a relationship between the two of them, I think it's probably very gen- it's a genuine thing. I think it's a genuine mm-hmm bit of writing a bit of character dialogue as you said designed to like put that niggle in us you know yeah um i do like how he doesn't give up though Mm -hmm. like he keeps on this didn't work i'll build something new this didn't work i'll build something new i'll keep building i'll keep building like i'm uh, this is here and he just keeps going with it like he never like he never throws a tantrum he never is like yo people keep sabotaging he's just like okay this one was sabotaged fuck it move on to the next one this one was fuck it move on to the next one the one thing I did wonder, though, was... And again, this might be Patty Russell just maybe including a few shots that maybe she shouldn't have. Because mm-hmm. it was shot very well, but he saw Mike take the little metal thing off the stun gun. There's there's specifically a scene of he looks up because Mike runs over to him, mm. goes to grab the gun. He's looking at Mike directly at him. And it holds on the doctor after we see Mike take the thing off. As if the doctor's noticed, how was that there and how did Mike know what it did? Because Mike goes straight to remove it. Mm. And I'm like, maybe that was setting up something that they were going to have him be a bit suspicious earlier and then they changed it. But that shot just seems a little bit like that was really early. And he still trusts Mike. I'm like, but you were like... He was super suspicious. <laughs> I, actually, I got a different read on that scene because, again, it was just mm. my interpretation was that the Doctor was, because he had to avoid the, um, the T-Rex and he kind of dived into that corner. Like, was he disorientated and was like, what the hell is Mike doing? As opposed to... I, I, I Well, yeah, but he, he does specifically see Mike, you know, acting very deliberately is the point. Like, he sees Mike performing a very deliberate, grab the gun, take this thing off and shoot. All right. Yeah. I was like, I would have thought he would have been a bit more suspicious of that. Um, Unless he thought Mike was just trying to figure out how the gun actually worked. But again, that's just from my perspective that yeah. he might have been dazed when he kind of, you know, was attacked by a fucking T-Rex. Uh, yeah, no, it was just, it was just the one thing. Yeah. I, it's just whenever I, I, I watched the scene, and maybe Paddy Russell meant it in the way that you that you picked it up, but just the way I read the scene was, well, he's going to out Mike now because... He saw that Mike knew exactly how to fix the problem. I I need to go back and watch that so because like I'd be curious to get that read on it. 
Mm. Or just to see if like that if I completely misinterpreted the scene. Just that one bit. Yeah. From episode two, where Mike goes into no, in to get him, and grabs the gun. Mm-hmm. It, I don't. I think it just holds him a bit long. Right. Um, but like I said maybe maybe it's just um, different ways of picking up the same the same impression. Anything else you had on the Doctor? Yeah, one I really wanted to see him punch out a pterodactyl. <laughs> Mm. Uh, we've just been like very in keeping with his character as of late uh, but no I I like when we see the Doctor in, in his element okay mm. uh, like, and we get the and we get specifically a lot of the third Doctor in his in his element in this one like science Doctor fighting Doctor the acting Doctor you know like with mm. his it was you wasn't it you was the knock that grasped on us you know his like, best that cock, was so good his, his cockney fucking uh, I love that um, two moments that I really enjoyed were mm. one his interaction with Sarah at the very start when they're being processed and he's like you know they're getting their mug shots so like the doctor is just there with his big goofy smile and like Sarah gets her mug shot and the doctor just goes now how about one of us together you know as if like they're <laughs> like a prom date or like you know on the beach promenade I really enjoyed that sequence I thought that was mm. kind of fun uh, because it shows that he has taken an actual shine to Sarah. She's not like a burden yep. that he has to get back to mm. like that. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, but the other thing I really enjoyed, and you can put it down to, I think you'll, you'll put it down to Malcolm's writing, mm. and you'll put it down to John's performance, is his speech to Mike yeah. about, you know, I in many ways I sympathize with your ideals, but it's the wrong way about going about it. I think it's a really, really touching. I think it's a touching speech. And it's like you know it, the, the way that the camera focuses in on him, and it's just like you know, do the best with what you have. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that moment. You know. Yeah. No, I thought it was very good. And again, the Malcolm stories seem to tie very well in with the you know Barry Letts and Terence's ideologies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think. From a producing and writing duo, mm-hmm. being Barry and Terence, who have been very, you know, not anti-modernization as such, but like anti-careless modernization. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's a nice message to be like, look, just, yeah, it's fucked up and we get it, but this isn't the way to fix it, do you know? And like... I know that uh, the show has come under has come under fire from sections of the fan bases of late for being too preachy or being too, you know, woke or whatever the fuck mm. you whatever buzzword you want to use to describe the that aspect of it. But and like they'll always hold the the classic era up on the pedestal, which is like, oh, like you know, it was never like that. And it's like, well, like this entire fucking tenure, it's technically been a platform for you know talking about and you know. Uh, advancement for the sake of advancement fucking pollution industrialization um apartheid st- like stuff that's happening in our world at that time yeah it's like just because we're living 50 years on doesn't mean that at the time it wasn't doing the same thing as it's doing now yeah and like, we've talked about it a lot like off and on you know throughout the episodes i mean this is this 71st story mm-hmm. that we've reviewed and particularly during Terence and Barry's run together. Um, so during the third Doctor's run, you know, with Terence and Barry together, that whole not using the show as a platform, but using the show as a spotlight. Yeah. 
um, has been very, very prominent. Mm. But it, it happened before then as well. And you know, like when people say, like, oh, what was the one that was in Jodie's uh, Orphan, second or, or, season? Orphan 55. No, no, that one. That one was shit. Uh, <laughs> that one. <laughs> uh, the one with the plastic, the one with the microplastics. Oh, was that? Uh, Praxis. Praxis. People were like, oh, you know, hitting you over the head with the pollution thing or whatever. It's like, dude, like. Inferno literally had yeah. like if you drill too deep you'll turn into green horrible like yeah. monster people and blow up the planet. Like you know, they were doing this before and even like the Green Death last week was all about this. So yeah, I I love the way Malcolm presented it because it's done in a way that is perhaps more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. I still think it's as hit you over the head as the new stuff is. It it is it is, um, but Malcolm did it really well in fairness to him. He did, and again, the performances by everyone to sell, like to sell the writing is mm. the big thing, because you can have yeah. someone that has a great, you can have someone that has like a great script or a great um, product, but if you if you don't have the people to sell it, then it kind of gets lost in the wayside, unfortunately. Yeah. But no, uh, I really like, I love that moment. I love that speech by John. I thought mm. it was great, so this is a this is a good performance for him, and I like definitely one that I would consider to maybe be in you know a candidate for his best performances. It would definitely be in my top five. I need, I need to have to think about whether it would be in the top three. But yeah. I think it would definitely be in my top five. Yeah. Cool. So shall we move on to the companions? Indeed, indeed. So Sarah Jane, the Brigadier, and Good Boy Benton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, I love Sarah Jane in this one. I really do. Uh, like, I love like we we. She's employing her journalistic skills to help drive mm. the plot. So, like, she this is the thing. Like, she actually drives the plot a lot in this, because she's the one that reveals to the audience that Grover is part of the, the whole conspiracy. She's the one that kind of like helps, you know, just track stuff down and really kind of get the guys thinking, and mm. the other she actually acts as a vehicle to show the progression of the surrounding characters as well which I'll get to when I discuss about those characters but through her you know in journalistic type things we're seeing a lot more stuff that we, we, we're seeing character growth in other people mm. I think um, I'll explain why when I say when we get to those people but um, she's like a dog with a bone you know she just like will follow that lead even when no one else wants to even when it's at the mm. detriment to herself like you know, nearly getting fucking like was it getting kidnapped twice or captured twice, <laughs> nearly getting fucking brained by a dinosaur, but she still doesn't give up and it's great. Mm. And like this story shows, it's great at showing an audience that's never been exposed to her before all the things that we love about her. Yes, because she's very self reliant. She gets herself out of the fucking spaceship. Um, she gets herself out of the, the the bloody the video room. Like she, mm. she doesn't have to get rescued. She gets herself out of every situation in this one. Bar one, which I'll get to in a second. Well, yeah, yeah. Obviously, like there's the, the fucking dinosaur situation, <laughs> but um, it's like after the bittersweet ending of Joe, mm. because Joe's progression was f- fucking fantastic. Mm. While, while, we're, while we have here is someone that is essentially a, um, it's a ready-made person they have all this yeah. world experience and they're just applying it straight away so 
we don't have to get like that same horrible kind of terror of the autons type introduction to someone. It's great, mm-hmm. but yeah, but it's a ni- it's a nice continuation. Like so, it's a, this is a very nice sequel in terms of sh- showing the character to mm-hmm. Time Warrior. Yeah, like I do love the fact that in Time Warrior and here mm-hmm. we see Sarah doing her job. Yeah, and I kind of made this point in the Green Death, and I don't mean to constantly compare. Sarah Jane to Joe but we, we compare Joe to Liz and, and that's just yeah. the, the way it goes uh, particularly when they come in sequence like this but we see Sarah Jane doing her job mm-hmm. and sometimes I think they forgot Joe had a job you know she's able to swan off and do whatever she wants with the doctor but she's employed by fucking unit but she just fucks off with him whenever she wants mm. um, whereas Sarah Jane is an investigative journalist and what I like is that she's clearly very good at her fucking job like I said they make the point that she's 23 mm-hmm. so she only left university what year maybe two years beforehand about that and she's already got contacts in terms of like scientific reporting and stuff like that like she's clearly very good at her job do you know and she clearly is someone who saves away every nugget of information as something that makes that may be relevant later, which is mm-hmm. great. She doesn't take while well being sidelined and just strikes it on, on her own. Mm-hmm. So, go you, Sarah. I love her little bit of I've gone out to play. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, is she perhaps a little bit too trusting? Maybe. But then again, how the fuck was she meant to know that the only two people who listened to her mm-hmm. were the bad guys? <laughs> like, how was she to know that? Because Grover and, and, and Finch. Well, like, I think with Finch, maybe, like, a bit of an eyebrow raise because he does a complete 180 towards her, like, where he, first of all, doesn't want her to be around at a fucking at all. But mm. then he's all nicey-nicey. So... But then, I th- see, I'll get to that when I get to Finch. I think he plays that really well because it's very believable because she's not talking nonsense mm. to him. She's talking... Facts. This is the thing and this is the person and this mm. is whatever. Um, I do love the fact that, for the most part we see Sarah getting herself out of situations, which is something that, you know, people say like, oh, the companions always had to be rescued. And I remember when, you know, people talk about school reunion, they say like how much of a better companion Rose is because Sarah Jane always had to be rescued in the classic show. And I'm like, I'm going, what fucking show did you watch? (laughs) (laughs) Because the one I'm watching, she saved herself plenty enough. The exception being when she's attacked by a fucking (laughs) T-Rex. Yeah. Now, Say what you want about the T-Rex. I'm sure we'll talk about them in their overall. Mm. But like, one of the things that I love about Sarah Jane as a character is that she is multi-dimensional. Yes. She has all of the bravado of someone trying to prove herself in mm. the world. Mm-hmm. She has all of the cunning and guile and she'll wrap people around her little finger and act all nicey-nicey to get the fuck she wants. But she also gets scared and it's something that Liz Sladen has said was that like she had no issue with Sarah screaming Mm -hmm. these things are fucking scary Mm -hmm. it is a fucking Mm T-Rex I'm locked in a room Mm -hmm. and I can't get out Mm -hmm. so yes she screams her fucking head off but anywhere where she can get herself out of a situation she does which is fantastic yeah I mean she did take a massive gamble, like, in-universe. Like, obviously, watching the show, you're like, well, obviously, the spaceship is fake. Mm-hmm. But in-universe, she takes a massive gamble that she's right. 
Oh, huge, huge gamble. She opens what everyone is trying to convince her is an airlock Mm -hmm. into space to prove a point. Mm. And I love that. Because, I said, we'll get to it when we talk about the other characters, but like, the level of detail on that spaceship mock up, mm-hmm. bearing in mind the way they designed their spaceships in Doctor Who anyway, like, that's, like, that takes balls. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, one thing I loved was that, like, it's not only is it a huge gamble, but it's a huge gamble because of all the stuff that. Like so, she says about you know, do you know how long it would take to get to like the nearest fucking planet? And it's like, mm. well, one of our people that's on the, one of the people that's part of this fleet helped design the new faster than light drive, which is why we've mm. been able to get as far as we have. And then she was like, what about the wound in my head? It hasn't healed. You've been in stasis the whole time. Now, as far as I know, most science fiction, if you go into stasis with a wound, the wound doesn't heal while you were in stasis. Yeah. So yeah, I think like, that's enough. Like of. That is There's just enough for it to be. Is it fucking real? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, so yeah, no ballsy move. Yeah. Uh, before Should we go on to the brigadier. Before we do, I just want to say, like, how mm. cool was it to get liked and uh, the hugs and emojis uh, by Katie Manning? <laughs> okay, so uh, for those of you who don't follow us on Twitter, uh, when we shared our ramblings about Joe. Uh, Katie Manning did like the tweet and did reply with like hugs and kissy emojis and whatever Um, it was a very nice start to my Friday (laughs) of what was about to be an incredibly stressful day in work Um, I loved it it was very sweet did she actually listen to the episode I doubt it but like it was nice for her to acknowledge it 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 was lovely it was like it was just really nice yeah and you know Paul um, from Half Measures you know I I was telling the guys um, you know Paul was saying that you know it's always nice to do something nice for someone. Yeah. And he sort of highlighted that one of the reasons why we like doing the rambling so much is because it's a way for us to celebrate the character mm-hmm. and the actor. Yeah. Do you know? And, you know, Katie appreciated that we did a look back on her, mm-hmm. look back on her character, which, which was cool. Um, but yeah. So, the Brigadier. Okay. Alistair, I know you don't know Sarah Jane, mm. right? And what you do know of her is that this woman used falsified credentials to essentially break into your secure area where you were trying to keep all these amazing scientists safe because they were being kidnapped. And then she wandered off Mm. with the doctor and you're probably having to explain where the fuck she went and whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. However, so like I get there's a little bit of mistrust there. Yeah. And I think it's a well justified Mm -hmm. mistrust. Saying it was her own fault she was nearly killed by a T-Rex is a bit much. Yeah. It, it, like when he says, like, no offence, Miss Smith, but, like, you shouldn't have been in there anyway. She had a pass mm-hmm. that someone gave her. So from her mind, yes, she should have been in there. Yeah. Um, like, I get that he's mistrustful of her. I think it, I think that's completely justified. Mm-hmm. I think it would be weird if he wasn't. Um, But that, that one line, I'm like, Alistair... Shame on you. It's not like she was trying to steal the fucking dinosaur. Like <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I find interesting, and I wonder, like, I think, I've always kind of noticed this, but I think this story really brought it to the fore when you see him facing off against Fenton. You've got him and Benton. Mm. Benton, who draws his weapon. Yeah. By the way. Uh, you're trying to capture the Doctor. 
you know, you've got the, the two uh, jeeps facing off against each other. I think this story really highlights a side to unit that it is easy to forget. Mm-hmm. Unit isn't regular army. No. And for the for most things, the brigadier doesn't report to regular army leadership. Mm-hmm. He reports to Geneva, as he says in nearly every episode he is in. Mm-hmm. But there are many matters where regular army does take authority away from him. I we've we've seen it a few times. Like if you go to clause of access, yeah. like once it becomes a national emergency, that's yeah. when units uh, mandate stops. Yeah, like, and it's not. I don't think it's even like that. Their mandate stops because obviously they were brought in for a reason. Mm. But like, as soon as it's a national problem, if regular army wants to take over. Mm-hmm. They can. Yeah. And his authority is taken away super quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And he's basically been told to heal. Yeah. I think it's something something you can forget because the Brigadier is so very, like, powerful and he, he presents such a strong presence. Yeah. That, like, in stories like this, and he said Claws of Axos is another really good one. You know, he's fighting... He's fighting his own country, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know? Like, he doesn't represent the crown. No. He represents the UN. Mm. Um, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's very interesting um, when, when we see that happening. Hugely. Um, Hugely. I loved all his eye rolls of Fenton. <laughs> Those two together are just hilarious. Though I also love the completely unfettered trust he has in him. Yeah. Like, is it in that scene where they're going up against Finch in the Jeep? Mm-hmm. It's just the Brigadier and Benton versus Finch and his men. Mm-hmm. The Brigadier stands up like, oh, he's my prisoner. Mm-hmm. And Finch is like, we're taking him. And he just says, Benton. Yeah. And Benton stands up, draws his weapon. Yeah. And not his, not his sidearm. He draws, <laughs> like, a machine gun or whatever the fuck. I don't know what, it, I don't know what you call it, but... Um, I love their dynamic together. It, it's, it's so good. You know, it, it is, like, it's... The solid right hand, you know. Hmm. Um, for me, I can't remember the last time when we saw the brigadier this much on the back foot and fighting from underneath. Because hmm. when, like, when you first, uh, when the doctor and Sarah Jane first like, appear, it's like you know, well, Sarah Jane's like, oh, how would you know we try doing this? How would we try doing that? You go. You know, the thought had occurred to me, Miss Smith, but unfortunately, like our investigations have shown nothing. So it's like that's why I talk about the character progression. Like mm. he's been around the doctor so much now that he knows like that there are certain things and crises like this that like okay, we investigate this avenue, we investigate that avenue, we investigate so on. When you come to the story, he's gotten rid of like he's gone down all those roads and come up with nothing. So the doctor doesn't mm. have to go down any false roads or like like waste time with false leads. All the legwork has been done for him, so he's left with, okay, we're going for a Hail Mary here. That's the character progression through Sarah Jane that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, I love, yeah, like, the interactions with Benton are fantastic, as they always are. It's like, you can tell, like, that he's, like, when, like, Benton says, oh, I'll go collect them, and he's like, no, I need you here. Yeah. Send, just send a dispatch writer. It's like, 
you're caught between a rock and a hard place because like, you know you can send Benton like the one person that can be absolutely certain to bring them back and they can stand up to like you know the military court to get them back but at the same time who do you trust to help run the fucking operations while you're away mm. um, and the other thing I really love about him is like I love how he stands by the doctor and like, he's just willing to mm. you know risk his career because he says like this is mutiny it's like Finch says it's mutiny no sir it's not it's my du- it's my, my duty he's a prisoner of unit but like, he's willing to risk his career just to keep the doctor safe yeah one of the other things I really liked as well is how much and we, we see this with the Brigadier a lot like he you know we say Brig's gonna break you know he's, mm. he's gonna run in guns blazing blah 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 yeah. but it's guns blazing against the enemy yeah looters aren't the enemy no and he is not going to shoot them on sight. No, that's thing. Like we have a bigger problem here, which is like the fucking like we need to find out where these things are coming from. Like money, like it, the whole thing is like you know, stolen goods can be reimbursed in terms of like you know insurance mm. claims, all this type of shit. Like you know, yeah, like a couple of businesses losing their goods at this time is like my not my major concern. The yeah, but also the idea of like refusing people due process, yeah, and just shooting them on sight. Like the fact that he like. He never actually agrees to do it. No, it, like it's yeah. Like if Finch keeps saying like, "Oh, I'll give, I'll give you more officers, but your unit guys are going to shoot on sight," and he never says, "Okay," we never hear him give the order. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And we can assume that he never gave it <laughs> in in that part. Um, but yeah. Well, I think no. I think Finch was giving him regular army personnel, but the regular army personnel were responding to the shoot on suit shoot on side yeah but order. regular army were but like he also said and the, the unit would have to do the same oh yeah you're right you're right and sorry. the brigadier never confirmed that he would yeah. <laughs> that he would do that he's like yeah whatever <laughs> give me fucking men you bollocks <laughs> yeah I, I like the brig i like sorry i love the brig in this one mm, but not too. but not as much as i love the next guy we're gonna talk about <laughs> i fucking love benton i think this is Whenever I think of great moments for Benton, this is always the story that stands out in my mind. It is. Like, we always say that, you know, he's good boy Benton, as if he's a dog. Yeah. But he's great boy Benton. Like, in this one. He is the solid right hand with a solid right hand. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I love that whole thing, you know, there's not too many searches to get a box of general on the nose, and, like, Brig is just like, don't make a habit of it, Benton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like,. I I love him so much, and I, I love that you know he's little. He's so proud of his color coordination for all the dinosaurs. Like, you know, this, these are the, the blues are for brontosaurus. The red, like the brig is like, okay, thank you, Ben. <laughs> um, but like, there's so much betrayal that really affects Benton in this, mm. like the, the idea of Yates being the traitor, and then actually coming to that realization, and like confronting him with like, you know, you're willing to. To die, you know, to die mm. on this gamble, that kind of stuff, or again, which leads to the classic Brenton moment is like that when F- even though Finch has a gun on him, and it, it's not like you know he can throw something at him to distract him, or Finch is looking away. Finch is looking right at him when he attacks, so he's risking an awful lot there, and like that struggle between the two of them, it's great. You know, you'll be court martialed for this. He's like, very sorry about this, sir. I love, I love that he apologizes while beating the shit out of him. Yeah, it's so funny. And I do like the fact that we're kind of left in suspense for Benton's fate because just as he's about to punch 
uh, Finch, the gun is kind of turning in mm. and it's just left. Like we have no idea what happens until we see Benton arrive in the facility and it's like, ooh, that's that that makes that tugs at me, you know, that, that makes me nervous. Mm. But this is probably one of my favourite Benton stories. I think it's it it this and the demons are probably my favourite mm. Benton stories. I'd agree. Like I said, he's so great in this story. Um, you know, we talked about how the brigadier was willing to risk his career for the doctor. In many ways, like Benton almost did more in terms of risking his career. Oh, huge. Like a sergeant attacking a general. Mm-hmm. Like, no, just game over, man. Like your career is shot to shit. The brigadier will be backed up by Geneva. Do you know he'll yeah. have Geneva behind him? Benton won't. No. Benton will have the brigadier behind him, yeah, but he won't have the power of Geneva behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that, like, when the brigadier says, you know, Benton, and he immediately stands up and pulls his, his machine gun as if to go, if you want him, it's sort of, sort of that Lord of the Rings moment, if you yeah, want him, come and take him. him. Yeah. <laughs> type thing. Um, but I love how he never doubts the doctor. No. You know, you Finch saying to arrest him, you even have the brigadier saying, yeah, arrest him. Like, the brigadier's obviously like, you know, Arrest him, yeah. <laughs> you know, as in like just keep him out of Finch's way, and as soon as and immediately, well, even considering it, Benton's like, okay, you two, off the pop, get out of the fucking room so I can talk to him. Yeah. Okay, do your thing. You're going to overpower me, and it's going to be horrible. The one thing I would say is the doctor could have eased him down and supposed to have face plant onto the floor. Yeah, you know, he, he, like he was he was very gentle and oh, it's just a pinch, and he collapsed, but he didn't help ease him down. He meant splattered his face on the floor but uh, I just I love that sequence That's, well doctor you better get, start getting overpowering me aren't you going to use your Venusian Uja <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great performance from John Levine here because mm. like or, 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 you know, I love, actually love this whole thing he's like well Benton place yourself under arrest <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no like, but the other there's two other bits that I really love as well one is is to do it Mike mm-hmm. so when Mike pulls the gun, yeah, you can tell that Benton is gutted. Mm-hmm. But because it's the thing of like he kind of accepted before that yeah Mike was acting weird yeah, but to have it proven to him mm. by Mike actually drawing a gun on them yeah, like just the look on his face John really sells it well. Mm-hmm. Um. The other one is a slightly more humorous one, which is he has no clue what to do with Sarah Jane. Yeah. At all. <laughs> and this is something that will continue. I think he's just like, the camera just lingers on him, he just goes, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is something that will come up again in a future story because she's not Eunice. No. Do you know? Um, she's not in the military. He doesn't really have any authority over her. Mm. And the way she's just like, well, they told you to take care of me. Uh, and I want a car, please. And he's like, oh, like if fine. We... Fuck it. I'm going to get so much trouble over you. <laughs> I think if we were to do like a like a, like a best performances from, I'd say John Levine, I would probably mm. do like this Inferno and Demons. Demons, yeah. yeah. I, I, would, I would highly agree. Yeah. So... Now we again we could gush on him for like hours, but mm. <laughs> we'll move on to the prominent characters. So we have 
uh, Root, Adam, and Mark, and we'll segue into Benton as he straddles the line Yates. between probably character Yates. and villain. Ben, ben, Benton's perfect. Sorry, yeah, Yates, Yates. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll slide into yeah. Yates and punch him in the face. Um, we start a Root. This what a ginormous b- fucking cow. This, this bitch is crazy. She is fucking crazy. Um, you haven't seen it because I know that's not your thing, but mm. a movie that I absolutely love is The Mist, uh, Stephen King's uh, movie, The Mist. I've seen clips of it, and I know the basic concept of it, but I have not seen it in full. Uh, I would highly recommend anyone to watch it. Uh, Basically, big spooky monsters uh, come out of a mist, and a group of people are trapped inside a shop. But as stuff keeps going on, and as more people die, and as things get bad, this religious nutbag... Now... Cards on the table, as we've said before, people with faith, they're grand, but people that are religious, like they're, they're fucking zealots, they're dangerous. And this is what this woman is because she uses all this shit to convince people to come over to her side, so much so that they're willing to kill a small child to sacrifice to God to get the monsters away, like a small fucking innocent boy. Mm. Yeah. Root is exactly like this fucking person. It's like, they're a dangerous influence. They must be killed. They must be eradicated. And it's like, you're, you, you, you want to start the world over. You want to start, like, you know, this new utopia. And your answer to that is anyone with a dissenting opinion isn't to, like, give them a chance to get used to the idea or, you know, look, here's a bag of fucking food. Off you go into the world, do your own thing. No, it's to fucking murder them before they get a chance to arrive, essentially. Yeah, and like, the thing about it, I mean, she's a total like cult fanatic type yeah. person. But like from her perspective, when she first suggests killing Sarah, mm-hmm. she's only been there a couple of hours. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> a couple of hours after being awoken from stasis mm. or whatever, and she's ready to kill a bitch. It's like, what the is up with you. Yeah, no. But like, also, it's like, granted. Like at the end, you know, I was kind of half afraid that at the end she would throw her lot in with Grover and be like, "No, I agree with you." Roll back time, and thankfully she doesn't do that mm. for a news tour. But like, her thing, she she says at one point that like their entire group, so their ship and their whole group, could be contaminated or whatever the fuck the word she was. Yeah. Basically, she's so worried that if Sarah has a dissenting opinion, that what she's suggesting they'll do to Sarah, she thinks the rest of them will do to her. Do you know? That the other ships won't like that her ship had a dissenting opinion on it, and they'll be held against her. You go, fuck off. Because, like, we, like... Sarah Jane like says like that everyone is like you know oh you're a very famous novelist and you're you're an Olympic mm. athlete and, like you're like one of these like you're like a big anti-industrial people you know mm. and each one each of them Mark Adam and Root all represent a facet of a, of a person that joins a organization or like a cult or mm. a, you know, even a religious organization and like Root is one of definitely those hardline fucking people. That's oh, like yeah. everything is, nothing is subject for question. Who the leader is completely infallible, and his will must be done. Fucking get rid of anyone that doubts it, even for a second. Yeah, and they're, they're scary people, scary individuals. I think that kind of leads us into Adam because I don't know about you, but like it seems like Ruth has Adam by the balls. 
It is for for the for most of it. He does grow a pair later on. He does. And like Adam is like the type of person I think that would have to be really schmoozed and flattered in order to kind of join the thing because he's mm. he's not he he's not a blind follower. Like obviously no. there has to be like there's a sales pitch that has to be made to him. And I think once he gets in so deep he does become a bit like, you know, of a you know, like I've got you now by the short and curlies. Mm. So it's like you kinda and he's too afraid to speak up without yeah. absolute emphatic proof. But once he gets mm. it, he's like, No, we've got to fucking stop this. Even when yeah, in fairness, like he knows something is up. Yeah. This is weird. Mm. And so even though Ruth is like, yo, don't like, it this shouldn't leave the ship. It's like this horrible, like abusive relationship they have. You know, it shouldn't leave the ship. Hmm. You know, no one else should know what's happening in our ship. But he's like, no, this is weird. I'm going to reach out. Is there someone there? Mm-hmm. There is. Okay, Grover is coming over. I'm going to, you know, pay close attention to this. Hmm. You know, this young woman is saying that the wool is being pulled over my eyes. Okay, let's have a think. Hmm. How is this going to work? And he's not... It takes him longer to come around than Mark. I think Ruth, like I said, has him by the short and curlies a bit in that respect. But he's not dumb. No. Yeah. No. He just needs to discover things in his own way. Yeah. Um, and once he goes to do that, he will follow through on it mm-hmm. 110%. So then we have Mark. Good guy. Good head on his shoulders. And like, I don't know about you, right? But if we're going with this analogy of like, of... We'll, we'll go with the religious organization because I think mm. that's the one where it's mostly Mark for me represents the purest ideals of what Operation Golden Age is all about mm. in the sense of like you know he wants a better world he wants like everyone to be happy he doesn't want this fucking cloud hanging over their heads at the same time that doesn't mean they should abandon their humanity to, to get that yeah. fucking thing like he's very kind to Sarah the entire time like he's bringing mm. her food he was like you have to eat you have to keep your strength up you have to pay attention to this re-education video otherwise you know they could hurt you it's I really really enjoyed him and I mm. also enjoyed the, the team up of the two of them yeah I think I think he works really well as a character mm. I think you know sort of going back a little bit to the sort of fanaticism mm-hmm. and the I don't want to make this about religion because it isn't like religion it, never gets mentioned no but they changed their names yeah. to very biblical names. Yeah. Adam, mm-hmm. Ruth, Mark. Mark isn't his actual fucking name. No, it's John Crichton. His name was like Alan or John no, or something. It's John Crichton. John Crichton. <laughs> 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 yeah. like, so like, you know, there is a certain level of cultishness to it. There, there is. You know? There is. Um, and he clearly got involved 100% for the right reasons mm-hmm. and he hasn't let go like those reasons are the reason why he can't let them hurt her mm-hmm. because he wants to be better yeah. so killing her is not them being better yeah exactly and so he just represents the purest ideals of that organization and yeah. like individuals like that you have to appreciate them because it's like look this is what our message is going to be we're and like we're flawed 
but we've got the uh, fucking we did, we're trying to make ourselves better. Mm. So, <sighs> yeah, no, Captain Mike Yates. <laughs> Dude, I knew there was a reason I didn't like you. <laughs> it's not because I watched the story before I watched all the other ones that was irrelevant. Yeah. Oh, like what the fuck are you doing dude yeah like that that's pretty much <laughs> my thing, whole thing is like right I know that you had that issue you would boss in your head and you're you're a bit fucked from that but dude Jesus fucking Christ it cannot be that bad that you're willing to fucking sacrifice your friends but this is the, I don't buy the boss thing right no. I'll tell you why so he does mention that after the whole thing with the maggots, mm-hmm. he took some time off. Yeah. Fine. But, like, two things. A, he was under the control of boss for maybe two hours. Mm. And then the doctor fixed him. Mm-hmm. And everything else was Mike playing pretend. Yeah. And you could maybe say that the whole interaction with the company in general, the idea that they were drilling and that that's what caused the giant maggots and stuff put him on this whole like better world more natural idea right mm. like professor jones mm-hmm. professor jones wants people to change to eating fungus instead of steak yeah mike is willing to kill billions of people mm. to ro- like it's not that he it's not like he doesn't know what they're doing he knows what they're doing yeah. and he's going along with it Oh, I won't kill the doctor. Yes, you fucking will. Mm-hmm. Because when they roll back time, guess what? He will die. Oh, I don't... You know, you didn't tell me that Sarah Jane would get hurt or whatever. What did you think was going to happen? You utter knobhead. At this stage, dear listeners, Mike has catapulted himself into the villain section of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he has. Like, um... The only thing that keeps Mike and Prom in character... Is A, you put him there in the first place. Um, but also, you're like, you know, oh, he didn't want to hurt the doctor. Oh, well, but he still actively sabotages things. He knows exactly what's fucking going on. And he's willing to flush humanity down the toilet. Because he wants to hear nightingales in Berkeley Square. Fuck you, Mike. I know. I, I, I put him into the prominent character section just as a placeholder. I, I was like going, I feel like he should be in the fucking villain's category. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, fuck you, Mike. <laughs> And, like, you wouldn't mind if he wanted a simpler life. Go call up Joe and mm. Clint or Cliff and go off fucking up the Amazon with them. Well, that that might be a bit too much for him because, you know, the whole I kind of liked her fucking story that was hanging. But, but yeah, but but see, this is the thing, right, is that you this does raise the question, right? Do you think Cliff was tried was attempted to be recruited by Grover? Because Cliff's whole ideology is sustainable life or sustainable energy sources mm. and not relying on so much on red meat and everything like that to make the world better. Which kind of seems like what Operation Golden Age is all about. I don't know. Because... Or is it more the whole thing of he's Cliff is too together to fall for the sales pitch? Cliff wouldn't fall for the sales pitch, I don't think. Yeah. Cliff, like... Cliff has a good head on his shoulders. I don't think he'd fall for the sales pitch. Also, Cliff and his group were very happy with making the best of what you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, bettering 
the people of today. Yeah. So I feel like that um, after that, after that experience and after seeing what Hobie are all about, like what the fuck was said to Mike to make him go this far off the fucking deep end? Like, I don't know. But like, he's super sus from the get go. Hmm. Because he's practically wiping Finch's arse for him, like, mm. you know. But see, this is a confusing like, thing. Like, is Mike attached to unit at this point, or is he attached to the regular army? I always thought. So this is an interesting thing. Looking back on it, Mike to me, because we've said that Mike is a bit of a shit captain in many ways. I think Mike is a liaison between regular army and unit. Hmm. I think he reports to unit. But, like, his command chain actually goes up regular army. If that makes sense? Like, he's, like, an adjunct to unit. If that makes sense? Because, like, either that or Finch was, like, you know, one of your men is going to be reporting to me and then I'm going to take Mike. But, like, I don't know. Fuck you, Mike. Yeah, you know, it looks like he was um, a regular army ad- uh, adjunct uh, to unit. Yeah, so I think like regular army can, like, if there's a regular army person, mm-hmm. Mike kind of defers to them. <laughs> Do you know? Um, but the way he even treats everyone else, like, just fucking swanning about, you know, not getting, oh, no, fuck you, Mike. Yeah, like it's after like what is it now? After three years of go or after like re- of showtime, nearly two year, two and a half years of mm-hmm. going through all the stuff together, it's like <laughs> it's very fucking like it reminds me of the show I've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, Berserk, where a character is given like you know the opportunity to get all his fondest wishes, and in return, he just has to sacrifice all his supposed you know friends and people that got him to that point and he just goes yeah I'll do it and people say he did nothing wrong no this, this okay <laughs> this is a question for you right <laughs> I love the break right but the break yeah. is being sentimental mm-hmm. Yates should be in jail for the rest of his life yeah like, not you know he's given the opportunity to retire and fuck off no Yates should be in jail mm-hmm. forever yeah like, Even, it could be like a minimum security jail but he he does deserve to be no, fucking no. locked off <laughs> Yates was part of a conspiracy mm-hmm. to kill everyone on the planet yeah <laughs> A psycho ward B jail like this whole idea of oh well Yates is just going to retire quietly it's like oh that's it's such like an army cover up fucking <laughs> response and I'm like I'm I'm like I get the brig being sentimental but like <laughs> oh I, I'll say it again because I said it once. fuck you Mike do you know what uh. I think Mike tops my list for fuck you character I think I actually hate Mike more than Stephen I'm just like for some reason now I'm just imagining you like you know like working at a con and you're like the 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 personal assistant to both Peter Purves and <laughs> Richard Franklin <laughs> they're both lovely yeah I am not a fan of their characters yeah no that, that's and the if 
Okay, and this is the thing, right? Listeners out there, if you like Mike, if you support Mike in this story or in any of the other stories we've talked about, can you tell me why? <laughs> I genuinely want to know. Because to me, he's not a likable character. <laughs> Personally. Uh, you're not on our apocalypse survival team. <laughs> no. Well, does the apocalypse survival team include the one person that you sacrifice willingly to give you more time? Only. Yeah. Seek on the team for that. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, our friend Darren has always said that if, you know, if we're ever in an apocalypse scenario, we're not to trust him. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't trust Darren as far as I can throw him. Cool. I just thought something really stupid. Yeah, I think I thought the same thing. In an apocalypse scenario, like, you know, you, me, Darren, as well, we're like like, teamed up together. We wake up in the morning, Darren's run off with all of our supplies and my shoes. He, no, he, no, that's why he did say that. He would, he said he would take shoes. Yeah, but he'd take my shoes because our feet are the same size. Yeah. <laughs> Darren's got dainty feet. <laughs> That's a big feet. Okay, let's move on yeah. right, to the rest of the villain gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Whisker, Grover, and Finch. I don't know what order you want to do those. Maybe Whisker, Finch, Grover? Yeah, I think Whitaker, Finch, Grover. Because I think Whitaker and despite... Um, the appearance of the actor playing him, mm. um, Peter Miles. Whitaker's, for me anyway, Whitaker's whole motivation was just to show the world that his theories and his, you know, his theories worked. That was the thing. Yeah, see, this is the thing about Whitaker, right? We're never given a reason why he wants to restore the Golden Age. And if we're going with what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is that he wants to prove his theories, prove them to who? To the people who think they're on a new fucking planet? Like, his involvement makes very little sense. Like, he's clearly doing it willingly, but I do wonder if at some level he was strong-armed into Like, if he was strong-armed into it originally, and now he's just having scientific fun playtimes. Of being like, I will know that I was able to do it. Because I don't get what's in it for him. He could make his own personal Wakanda. The most technologically advanced city in the entire fucking planet. Yeah, he could, but like, what's, a, what, what's, a, what's a scientist, you know, with knowledge of time travel going to do? The prehistoric, like, what, what like, do you know? <laughs> I don't know, I think, I think he's an interesting character. I think, you know, I do wonder if in his lie to the Doctor there was some level of truth. Yeah. You know, that he did get pulled in as soon as his thing was denied. Grover pulled him in straight away. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't been able to leave since. Because no one has seen him in six months. He clearly has not left that bunker in that time. Because Whitaker was out and did everything, did everything for him. Or no, Whitaker, the other guy was out and did everything for him. Something from Clerks 2 just popped into my head and I just go like, I could be the first person to travel back in time and fuck someone in every era I go back to. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's his goal. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, like he, it, it's a strange one. It's a, it is a very strange one. Hmm. And like it, it, I think it's a shame. Now, very very light on that word. Hmm. That 
he gets sent back with Grover because of Grover's insanity. Yeah, like... He tries to save Grover. Yeah. And he ends up getting fucking put back in time because of it. Yeah. Like... Those two are dead, like... They're they're super dead. Oh, absolutely, like... (laughs) They are neither of them the most... um, Survivalist, shall we say? No, but I I demand they go fucking back, like, because God knows where that, like, if that's going back to like a point in time, if that mission, because it it can't Mm. travel, it just goes back to that location at a point in time. Mm. God knows what's there. Like, it could be a tar pit, it could be a fucking a nest, it could be, I don't know, it could be the middle of the ocean, which Mm. it could possibly quite be. Well, no, because the middle of London. Oh, Pangea. Pangea. Sorry, yeah, Pangea. Fuck it. Ugh. <laughs> Stupid supercontinent. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I do feel for him in that sense. Do you know? But um. Oh, actually, something much worse. That thing's underground. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing there. No, that's um fucking that horrible thing in TNG. They solid. They materialize in solid ground. Yeah, there's nothing there. Oh. Ugh. Or rather, there's everything there. Yeah. Oh no! Yeah, no, oh, no, no, thank you, no. sir. No, no, cool. cool. Moving no. on, moving on. <laughs> Finch. Finch. Okay, again, I have a similar thing with Finch. Right. So Mike goes on about Nightingales and Barclay Square and all that nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. What was Finch's interest in Golden Age? Supreme ruler. Of what? Do you know of two hundred people who want a better life? We never see him espousing the need for a simpler life in the same way that Mike does, in the same way that Grover does. No. Because Grover clearly believes what he's doing. He's fucking loop-de-loop, but he fucking believes it. Why is Finch involved? Well... Like, did Grover blackmail him? Was that it? Doubtful. I, I don't see any... There's nothing to indicate that he's got a shady past. I don't know what else it could be. Grover's a hell of a sales pitch. Maybe. Yeah. Um, what do you think of Finch in general, though? Other than uh, that, why the fuck is he doing it? Like, never has a character appeared in a show that felt like the evil essence of another person. Like, if if you because like that standoff between the brig and him solidifies it. It's like the essences of one people of one person, the good and the bad, separated and are now fighting each other. Mm. Because in many ways, he kind of reminds me of Brigade Leader Stuart. Mm. So, like, it it's like the dark mirror. What are nonsense? Yeah. Like, what is this shit? Yeah, exactly. Like, and it's just like, and like, you know, shoot looters on sight. And the hard line of the whole thing. And it's like, I love... Um, I just love the idea of the Brigadier coming up with, like, you know, facing essentially his dark mirror. And I think like and the performance um, from the guy that played Finch really, really fucking. Oh, he was brilliant. He was amazing. Um, and again, like on the subject of, I have his name there. One second, John Bennett. I knew it was mm. John. Uh, on John Bennett's performance, is that like we talked about how like oh he went from wanting to get Sarah evacuated to like helping her. It really shows the range of that actor because he, when he's being nice to her, it feels believable. Mm. It, it feels really, really believable. 
and I think that's the one thing that he really nails is that is that everything Finch does feels believable like you know it, there's no mustache twirling villain to him it's like although I do I do think that the jeeps it was kind of like the battle of the mustaches yeah oh Jesus it was amazing <laughs> I, I love that sequence that sequence is so good um but I think the thing with Finch that I find is like he's the total bullheaded general who mm-hmm. doesn't listen to science shoot on sight like you said he's like brigade leader Stuart or whatever yeah you know what do you think is happening well, blah, blah, blah. stop giving me all this science nonsense. Well, don't ask the fucking scientific advisor. You don't need a scientific answer, dipshit. <laughs> Enough of your techno space age babble, Attila the Hun. But again, I have to wonder is that how he truly is? Or is that just because he was trying to distract everyone from Operation Golden Age? Do you know? Like, how much, like, which bits of his interactions with people were an act? Hmm. And which bits weren't. Like, the way he's saying that Sarah Jane shouldn't be there. You know, she's a civilian. Fuck her off. Get the fuck out of here. What the fuck is this shit? Hmm. That, I think, is genuine. It's a genuine response. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, like, the way he flips things around then later on, where he actually listens to her, it's... I don't know. Like, it's an act, yeah, because he's trying to get her on board. But also, you're like... If he wasn't part of Operation Golden Age, would he be more inclined to listen to the investigative journalist who was quoting her sources and actually had reports to speak to and blah, 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 blah. Like, is he anti-science? Or like, how much of it was an act? Was all of it an act? Do you know, was all the bluster an act? We don't know, which is very interesting to me. You know, don't you say it is because... I, I actually never thought of that. Um, like, you know, it's just like, was he trying to um, dissuade people from going down the right path by appearing to be completely dismissive of science and whatnot? Yeah, because um, like, you know, he's he's giving uh, the brigadier more soldiers, but only to deal with the looters. Mm-hmm. Not to deal with, like, he's, he's not giving him help dealing with the problem. Yeah. So he's constantly pulling him into meetings to talk about fucking God knows what. That feels like work. Um, but like, you know, I wonder, like, did we ever see the real Finch in his interactions with the quote unquote good guys? Do we ever see the real Finch? <sighs> see, I, like, I've just looked up there. There's no like... Um, and there was, like, no one ever said like oh like Finch is such a hard ass like I remember years ago hearing this story about him or whatever we never hear any of that and, like there's no like pro story with him as another character in it at any stage mm. like so you just, what you see is what you get unless the novelization of the story reveals something else I don't know yeah because like you know you'd kind of expect you know Benton to be like you know oh doctor you know be careful around General Finch I've heard stories from the men about what he was like yeah yeah, but we don't hear any of that. So it's like, well, is he just a jackass for the sake of being a jackass in the story, or is he a jackass all the time? So one thing for it, bring the character back, bring him back. <laughs> I say because I quite enjoyed him as a villain. I did too. Yeah. So now on to Grover, and I swear to God, every time someone said his name, I just thought of Super Grover from Sesame Street. Mm. <laughs> I also thought of Grover from Sesame Street. Grover is a certifiable psychopath. He is. He's insane. 
Like we've talked before about mad scientists, right? He's not a scientist, but he kind of we'll we'll, we'll, we'll bucket him on his What he is doing mm. is so fucking mental. Mm. Okay. Set aside the rolling back time part, mm-hmm. right? Set aside the like retrospective murder of billions of people, right? That is not the worst part. Well, that is the terrible part. But in terms of his psycho nature, he's tricking people mm-hmm. into thinking they're on a spaceship going to another planet. He pretends to get dressed up. He gets dressed up in an astronaut uniform and makes believe he's coming in from like an airlock to make people go along with his mass genocide of the human race. This man is fucking certifiable, mm. and he's probably the most psychotic human we have ever interacted with on the show. I like. I suppose that 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 brings into answers one of my points here is that he's incredible at playing people and at getting them under his thumb or convincing them. Like he's incredibly charismatic and he's oh, yeah, incredibly yeah. convincing. It's almost Lecter-like. Oh yeah. Um, but like the. If his plan had succeeded, he would have gone down as the fucking greatest mass murderer in human human history. Uh, And he made all of these people his accomplices. mm -hmm. The the set that they built to make it look like a spaceship, all these levers working on their own Mm -hmm. to make them believe they were on autopilot through space. If he, like, I think one character that might have given us a bit more insight into everyone else, if he had been there a bit longer was Butler the other scientist mm. because clearly, clearly he was in a, like his his desire was Operation Golden Age mm. and I think he would have been a good window into the world of like the characters like of the three lads like yeah. what's going on but as we, what we have is like Grover's a consummate politician and like you could tell mm. like that everyone like we like the three people that we talked about there he I'd say he had a strategy to get each of them on board yeah. I would say like you know with Mark it was like uh, going to his ideology mm. with uh, Adam it was schmoozing with Root they're both batshit insane they were probably lovers I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but, but like oh. but, see, but see this is the thing it was like that if you go back you know we talk about him being a fucking psycho and like you know convincing people like that he had like he had managed like to convince Root that it's okay to fucking kill dissident opinion. Yeah, it's, it's bonkers. Like, they were afraid of opening a door. Yeah. That led to stairs. Who's more insane? The fuck, you know, the, the, the psycho or the psycho that follows them? <laughs> but, like, the level of... Also, we didn't touch on this. They have a way to put people in suspended animation. I just didn't knock them the fuck out. <laughs> Mark, from what I gather, Mark and Ruth and Adam have been in that facsimile spaceship for three months. Because no one was there to wake them up. Well, like, I don't think they've been awake for a few months. I think they've only been awake a short while. I think the flight time was what they were saying is that they've been in, that the flight time between planets was three months. Like, they these people are in some type of stasis. Hmm. 
because they don't wake up or die. <laughs> and it's like, um, what sort of weird fuckery nonsense <laughs> is this man playing at? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm of the opinion that what he did was he brought them all each into that, you know, there are four lights room mm. and they were all hypnotized and each of them was given a spiel as when they got up. So like Adam and Ruth would be the first to wake up and they would have probably got some automated voice fucking thing telling them, welcome and wake up, you know, like kind of like mother from the Nostromo and Alien, you know, mm. I think that each of them, they were brought in at the same time. All went through that hypnosis thing, and each of them was given a different spiel when they woke up. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like this man is like literally like psychotic. Mm. It's, it's I I do genuinely think of all the like human villains we've had so far. Mm-hmm. He's probably the most batshit crazy. Actually, uh, I, I completely fucking forgot. What this kind of reminded me of? Oh. Enemy of the world. Yeah. 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 It's it's the same thing. Yeah. Except in Enemy of the World, Salamander was keeping people underground and like causing all these weird explosions. Yeah. He's convinced them they're in space. <laughs> oh god. He's convinced them they're in space. <laughs> Man. Like, it just it just blows. Like in Salamander's case, the bunkers were already there. Yeah. That was already his thing. He was just like, he built a fake fucking spaceship mm. and set it up so they'd think it was real. Like, what the shit? <laughs> I, I don't fucking know. This has been a really long discussion. It has. But like, but, what the shit? But that's what this point, like we've said that, you know, like these discussions, if they happen, we, we talk about them. Oh, this is going to be a bitch to edit. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay, so we've talked about the story summary, we've done the trivia, we've done a lot about the characters, mm-hmm. and now we're on to the open. So, Paddy, I'm going to put it to you first. Overall thoughts on the story and score out of five please so first things first has to be said right off the bat i don't mind the cheesy dinosaur effects <laughs> i really don't yes the t-rex looks like it's got a constant runny nose but you know fuck off it's a giant lizard it can do what it wants um i while some of them do have like eyes like they've just been given a rectal exam <laughs> i like they're, they're actually like parts here that I think work really well like the dinosaur like the T-Rex exploding out of houses I think that looks pretty cool I like the fight between the T-Rex and the Brontosaurus that looks kind of cool the CSO effect for the break of the, uh, the Triceratops not the best however the Triceratops looks cool the Triceratops look really cool actually yeah. driving under the belly of the Brontosaurus look terrible <laughs> um, so I quite enjoyed the majority of it then again I am a f- huge fan of schlocky uh, monster movies. I love the God's- Japanese Godzilla franchise. I love the Ray Harryhausen, uh, King Kong, and his other black and white movies. So, mm. deal with it. <laughs> um, 
I re- and as I said before, I really wish that they had another title at the start because like, you know, just to hide that fucking suspense. And I'm going to blame. Well, of course, for fans, it was hidden. Yeah, just because yeah. you know what the story is. I'm, I'm going to blame the Radio Times. You know, fucking Radio Times. Um, but other than that, there's some really good performances here. Like, and I know we talk about you know Benton or other, but like from everyone, like the doc, uh, from John, from um, Liz. They're amazing, Nick and John Levine. They're fantastic. Like even mm. like the supporting cast, like I would say like John Bennett as Finch, he's incredible. Uh, the guy who plays Grover, he's really good because again, mm. he makes we fell for it. <laughs> mm. Um. That being said, there are some issues. Like I think the, the biggest issue for me is the pacing. Mm. like some of it, it it's too long it doesn't need to be six it can be five if you wanted yeah. to, if you wanted to have it long you can have it as excuse me as five because i think the chase sequence you know with the doctor going into the woods and mm. like i forgot that was even in it yeah and then i was the, watching going have i have i seen this part before it's like, un- i have seen the story yeah. before it's but. unnecessary it really is mm. like he manages to avoid a patrol by just ducking into like an abandoned warehouse and then driving out again, just fucking cut it there and then pick up for the yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of backwards and towards and throwing. So that kind of takes it out of it a small bit. Also, like you're kind of wondering the character motivations. It's like, well, why the fuck is this person doing this? That person doing that? Um, so for that, I've given it a four out of five. Mm. Because I overall I do quite enjoy, enjoy it because like the plan is psychotic, <laughs> but like I love the performances from nearly everyone in it, mm. and like you know we've said like for example some stories like we've like effects are bad and fucking pacing is bad, but the characters are the ones like that give it the high score, whether the score be low to justify it like we we said we wouldn't mention it but god damn it i gave the gunfighters like what is it, like a half a point because of william hartnell's <laughs> fucking sto- uh, thing <laughs> he was the only good to get it um and or even like the massacre like which is like i enjoyed i enjoyed parts of the massacre mm. as a doctor who story it's terrible but as an actual story itself mm. it's kind of cool um so yeah i went with four out of five i'd be very similar so how similar <laughs> This story gets a lot of flack for the dinosaurs. Mm. They're not that bad. They don't take me out of the story mm. for the most part. There's one or two bits of CSO that I'm like, yeah, you just shouldn't bother. Just do a cut, you know, cut back and forth, but it would have been better. Um, but like, particularly, there's some moments, like, do you know what it was? When the T Rex's eyes open, when Sarah's yeah. flashing the camera. Mm. And they have the T-Rex eye slowly moving and then opening. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that, that was good. That was good. Mm-hmm. I thought the pterodactyl was actually quite good. Yeah. For the most part. Um, I think, you know, there are some moments with the T-Rex where <laughs> you can clearly see like the cup of the hand at the back of the mouth. <laughs> it's like, he doesn't have a throat. Yeah. <laughs> it just ends. But then like in the fight with the um, or whatever. When they have it, when they have it like slightly darker setting, mm-hmm. and they actually do have all the like sweat and saliva and yeah. stuff, it actually looks really good. Like at one point, mm. it was biting into the brontosaurus's neck, and you can see 
the saliva or maybe blood or whatever was meant to be running down the sides of Brontosaurus's neck. Yeah. Like, that was actually really, really cool. I think the Triceratops was perhaps the best one. Yeah. That looked fabulous. It did. Um, so people who say, like, oh, the dinosaur effects are like, this is a story my mother wouldn't have liked. Let's just put that one. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I don't think it takes you out of it. No. Not by not by a single measure. No, it doesn't. You know? Um, my major gripe is similar to you is the length and the pacing mm-hmm. I get the slow reveal at the start because it creates the eerie atmosphere mm-hmm. where is everybody but sometimes slow can be too slow once we hit the unit part and we know what's happening the whole the doctor and Sarah getting arrested and then escaping and then being captured again and then this thing it made for some funny moments but I'm like just guess to the fucking story <laughs> the setup was nice you know nice and eerie you know abandoned london was creepy then we find out you know the pterodactyl then it cuts to unit and now we should be into our story mm-hmm. but no they're going and getting arrested mm-hmm. and we're you know, it's a lot of <laughs> recapture <laughs> you know capture yeah. and recapture um i mentioned last week with time Warrior that what i like about time Warrior is that there's no fat on it it's mm-hmm. Action to action to action to action. This story is a lot of drive here, do this. Drive there, do that. Sarah escapes, goes back, gets captured, gets put back in. Escapes again. <laughs> it's like, okay, mm. I get it. So the the length for me is a bit much. Um, if you're to keep the eerie opening, I think yeah, five-parter would be probably the best. If you were going to drop the eerie opening and just say it's called Invasion of the Dinosaurs, it's going to be fucking dinosaurs, you could nearly get away with a four. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, And cut off that first part. However, there's so many things about this that I love, though. The acting, like you said, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Benton and Brig, fantastic. Sarah's just brilliant. It's like quintessential Sarah in the story. Again, like back to back. Like, if we were sort of being like you know, oh would this be in your top three those are the two stories we've watched i'm like yep mm-hmm. if i hadn't seen anything else i'm like well this is clearly a top performance right yeah like it has to be there's no way it can't be um so that's fantastic um the the, the thing with the spaceship the level of detail <laughs> that we did that is mental but I love it. Mm. So originally I was giving it a 3.5 mm-hmm. and then I was like, you know, but the main negative I have is the pacing. Yeah. And that's not a point and a half worth. Do you know, I think I was being a bit overly critical of it because I didn't want to be scoring all the Sarah Jane stories really high just because it's got Sarah Jane in it. Yeah. Um, but after our discussion, that's not why I'm giving it a four. Mm. I'm giving it a four because it's good. Yeah. Um, it just has a pacing issue that knocked one point off. And like, to be fair, like, there's a couple of stories during her tenure that are pretty... Eh. Yeah. Yeah, so don't worry. It won't be just like fives and fours galore. You know? Although, who knows? Looking at it from a different eye, maybe it will be. We'll have to see. Possibly. Possibly. I doubt it. We'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> there's one or two in particular that I'm like, ah, yeah. Yeah. Eh, miss. Um, but yeah, no, I think... Overall, though, season 11, off to a good start. Mm-hmm. Really uh, start. 4.5 is the average overall, I'm trying to see. So, last season, we started with a 9, or we started with a 5. Mm-hmm. I then gave the next one a 4, you gave it a 2.5. 
terror. I suppose the closest season opening we've had to this is probably going to be season seven, which would have been Spearhead and Silurians. Mm-hmm. It's probably the closest, like, back to back season openers we've had to this. Yeah. Just going back through. And the Smugglers and Ten Planet would be quite close, I suppose. Uh, Planet of Giants and Dalek Invasion of Earth would have been if Planet of Giants didn't oh, fuck up the landing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think this is probably our strongest season opener. Nice. Which is good. Like, to be honest, like, the, these last two seasons have been, for the most part, they've been fucking brilliant. Mm. For the most part. Yeah. Mostly. Look at you, Green Death, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. So, what have we got coming up next? Will the Doctor convince Sarah to go to Florana? Will they get there? We'll have to see. Although, given the title of next week's story, I'm thinking that they don't. <laughs> yep. So, come back to us in two weeks' time. Where we're taking another small break. Uh, oh, yes, we are. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Someone is going on holiday. I'm uh, going skiing. It'll be fun. I'll either break my neck or, you know, yeah, if you do that, I'll fu- if you do that, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, you use that threat against that oxymoronic threat against me plenty of times. I could use against you now. Um, so yes, join us in two weeks uh, for Death to the Daleks. Ooh. Ooh. Bye. Bye. <laughs>